So you're back here with Looking Glass Forum. We're pushing back on the, the social media propaganda spin machine, we're defending our ability to think freely and bringing you new levels of reason and logic that you're not currently permitted to think in the current politically correct structure. Welcome back here with Looking Glass Forum. Here we um, are in December 2020, and it's a very interesting time here. And if you uh, take a close look at the different news headlines and the different news uh, headline aggregators across the internet, if you look on MSN and you look on different um, internet websites that bring the really important information to you, you can see that we're experiencing a huge divide across the country as far as what is making sense and what is really the facts of of reality and what are the different reports that we can really trust that are grounded in the foundation of factual reality. And we have to really discuss what is uh, factual reality. Is, is reality just whatever bias that we prefer to hear? So you can see that there's really just these dueling echo chambers and our entire body politic is being pulled into these separate groups where people prefer to hear the news that they would like to be true. So it's a, it's a process of prognosticating or um, self-fulfilling prophecies that we're all engaged in trying to visualize the future or visualize events as we would like them to be. And so we see this all across the political spectrum here. We, I mean, you know, what it is you prefer to hear, what, what particular facts that you're trying to see come into being here as we move forward. I mean, on the, on the mainstream websites with the typical social media groups that are going to just completely have derogatory headlines against Trump and calling him a stunt a queen for trying to find a way to overturn the election results and to, to prove that there was fraud in the election. And on the other side, if you look at other news aggregators, you can see that we're, they're, they're following the constant attempt of Trump to find a way to find a legal remedy or to find a legislative remedy that could ultimately turn the tide here and and it's, it's an interesting position that we're in politically because we're so completely divided that we can no longer agree on what reality actually is. And the fact of the matter is that Joe Biden is not president-elect yet. And the fact is, is that Trump could completely lose this and have it stolen out from under him from a network of fraudulent ballots and computer hacking in the Dominion systems that basically made a, a, a Trump a landslide into a Trump loss. So from my point of view, it doesn't seem like that Trump has any reason to just give it up and concede. And if he doesn't concede, then somehow Joe Biden has to win. He has to take power. He has to get the president out of the White House and take over the presidency. And I'm not really sure how Joe Biden really goes about doing that. He's being really quiet about the fact that the Dominion machines are being explored and there are websites and there's lawsuits going on and they're taking the time in Michigan and other states to go through the voting machines carefully with forensic analysis and 
the headlines on the other side of it, if you're over on the MSNBC, uh, Microsoft, kind of CNN side of it, and you don't want to hear the facts, you're probably not hearing the fact that they're carefully finding a whole bunch of evidence that suggests that there was a massive voter fraud. And before, a week or two ago, this was dismissed as there was no evidence, there was nothing to say that there was any kind of voter fraud, but as we stand today, if you go ahead and look at some of the news articles that you might not prefer to read about because you like this alternate reality where Biden is already a shoe-in, he's already the president-elect, and he already basically won, he's picking his dream team cabinet. But if you look at the other side of the issue and go over to these other articles, it appears that Joe Biden is going to go down in flames. So we're in this dichotomy between two different places. I mean, we can't have two different presidents occupy one White House, so there has to be a winner. Ultimately, this fight is going to continue on, and it looks like that on the, the tech giant, Hollywood, influencer, um, mainstream media uh, side of the issues, we're going to see the, the Democrat side of the issue here. We're going to have Twitter and Facebook trying to control the language, control the discussion, the narrative, and allow what news stories they deem uh, to be reality or they see fit to release are the only news stories that you're going to find really trending and everything else is going to be blocked. Um, so any kind of discussion about an alternate outcome to this election, which they do not prefer, they prefer for the deep state kind of 45, 50 years in Washington, uh, D.C., the uh, the swamp creature Biden and Harris to come in to, to take control, and that would be the outcome that they've been planning for and that they see as the fit reality for us to to, to see expressed on the internet and, and on their website. So the alternate to that, the other side of it is that Trump is not conceding and that as we move forward, despite all the, the shrill media hysteria over um, Trump being some kind of deranged lunatic for not conceding and not giving up, it looks like that there was a massive amount of voter fraud. And some of the state governors and some of the, 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 the governors and the uh, legislators are not really interested in hearing it, and they're just going to go ahead and certify these fraudulent uh, election results. As it turns out, under law, you cannot certify fraudulent election, election results because they're fraudulent and they're incorrect and they're wrong. So ultimately, it takes some time to go through it all. But we don't have to really focus on the January dates. And we have to recognize that the Lincoln, one of the Lincoln elections went all the way until I believe it was the middle of March before it was finally settled. So this, this fight that Trump's putting up can go on for, for a long time. And ultimately, it's not really about Trump. It's really about what the state legislators decide they want to do. Because the, the, the election is decided not by popular votes or the fraudulent ballots that were stuffed into the, into the ballot box. Boxes, those can all be easily dismissed. It really comes down to the state legislators and who and which um, actual electors they're going to send. And then ultimately in the Congress and in the Senate, which electors they're going to dare accept. So we have to all become constitutional scholars and experts to, to understand how this is going to play out. But the media is really not doing us uh, any justice by just pretending like Joe Biden already won because he really didn't. And ultimately this thing could flip over and Trump could really overturn it. And it's not just a nightmare scenario, but it's an actual reality of, of a fact here that we have to really contend with if we're going to be rational people. So it would be nice just to stick wax in our ears because we don't want to hear anything more from Trump because we don't like him and just assume that, that Biden's dream team is going to win and they're going to you know, do the Green New Deal and just do everything that, on the other side of the political aisle that, we, that they would like to see. 
but ultimately Biden did not win, and it doesn't look like he's really doing much to to really increase his chances of really winning here, because ultimately, if they show that the Dominion voting system is incorrect, and that ultimately this these mail-in ballots are cast out, all of a sudden you're going to find out that Donald Trump is going to be inaugurated. And I think that's going to be earth-shattering if that's what actually happens. And all that really has to happen for this to, to go Biden's way is for Trump to concede and just back off and give up and just accept the status quo. But I don't think he's going to do that. And I don't think the state legislature is going to do that either. I mean, Texas had almost 20 states behind their lawsuit. And it really doesn't matter if the Supreme Court knocks that down or not because the Supreme Court isn't really in charge of the electors. In fact, the fact that they knocked that down and slapped it down really gave more fuel to the fire for the the people that are, uh, you know, the legislators and the lawyers that are trying to push this idea that there was election fraud and ultimately Donald Trump really won. So what it comes down to is that you can't have a, a false winner. You can't have a guy who, who lost the election, like in, in Biden's case, and they had a bunch of Dominion uh, voting software shenanigans that flipped hundreds of thousands of votes to Biden and they have a bunch of mail-in ballots that were never folded or never mailed in and never in an envelope. If it's shown that these uh, fraudulent ballots were filled out in haste and were just counted over and over and over again um, by using some of the tabulation machines error modes, it's really what's being shown that there was a lot of unscrupulous activity, a lot of pre-planned um, ballots that were basically set up for Biden by the tens of thousands and accounted repeatedly in order to basically show uh, it, it, when the Dominion voting machine tabulators were in an error mode, instead of resetting them, they just allowed the, the error mode to, you know, to, to allow the machine to stay in error mode and, and tabulated and counted uh, false ballots over and over and over again. And this is really, is it's being proved and it's being shown out county by county in Michigan and Maricopa County and some of the other areas. This is a lot of the information that the other side of the political aisle doesn't want to hear. They would rather just gouge their eardrums out with hot pokers than to hear all this conspiracy mumbo jumbo. But it's really very serious stuff. Uh, and ultimately, on the, on the left side of the aisle, they don't want to imagine that Joe Biden could be totally ousted him and his whole dream team. But you have to understand, this is a sitting president, and the incoming president doesn't really have any kind of political power. For the last four years, Donald Trump has been set up uh, you know, there in Washington, and he has his whole team in place. So he has a lot of emergency authority. He has martial law capacity. And ultimately, if it's being borne out to the American people and to Donald Trump that this election was stolen, that he was really the winner, he has absolutely no reason to give up the presidency, and he probably won't. And there's really nothing that Twitter or MSNBC or, or Joe Biden or Hollywood or anybody can really do about it. You can go out in the streets with Antifa and try to burn shit down, and you can go and jump over the fence at the White House and try to cause havoc with the uh, this George Soros-funded, the Obama-backed um, paramilitary groups that the, the Democrats have out there marching around Black Lives Matter and so on. But these groups are going to be countered by some of the other groups that are starting to step up like proud boy groups and so on and so forth it's just going to ultimately end up in this huge street melee and a, and a power struggle that's going to go down in the streets of washington dc here as i'm looking at it but ultimately donald trump doesn't have any real right to give up or concede if it wasn't
represent a real defeat. So on one side, you have um, the the news aggregators, you have the you know Twitter and Google and MSNBC and these other groups that are just refusing to listen to any of the other side of the debate. But on the other side of the debate, we have multiple states, legislatures, multiple state Supreme Courts, and we actually have um, the Republican side of it has control of a, a huge influence within the Congress and within the ultimately after the, the runoff, uh, the senatorial runoff campaigns there and in Georgia, the Republican side of this is going to control the outcome of the election because ultimately the Supreme Court has shown no interest and as they continue to flap away all the different lawsuits that are coming up to them, it's ultimately going to fall to the Congress to decide which electors they're going to choose. And you can see that the uh, the different states have are, have sent, they, they've sent Biden electors, but they've also sent Trump electors to Congress. So Congress will have the power to choose which electors they're ultimately going to accept and if it can be shown to them convincingly that there was an inordinate amount of voter fraud and that the true winner is Trump, then they have no reason to accept the Biden, the fraudulent Biden electors. Despite all the power plays that were put forward in the states by the attorney generals of the states and by the governors of the states, ultimately the um, these different states uh, are, are being controlled by Republican legislatures and they don't have any reason to accept the fraudulent outcome. The um, the Dominion voting systems and the um, the mail-in balloting process has been fraught with irregularities and fraud, so that to the point that we don't, as an American people, have to accept a false outcome. It, obviously, the Biden people, Twitter, Facebook, Google, Hollywood, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, you know, lots of you know, actors, uh, China, China, these are you know, international actors, China, Russia, other people had different reasons why they wanted to invest into this confusion and ensure that it wouldn't be a clean, straight up, up or down vote. But there would be all this confusion and all this different kind of stopping the vote counting and starting with different people coming in at different times in the middle of the night to add ballots and to do all this all, all this different kind of fraudulent criminal activity. And now the fact that you know Facebook, Twitter, MSNBC, Google, no, nobody's going to allow there to be any discussion about this election. And ultimately, you're going to be censored, and you're going to be your your opinion is going to be blocked if you want to express the idea that wait a second, this wasn't really a clean election. Um, ultimately, this kind of power play is going to push the the Republicans and really the Patriots who are interested in having a fair electoral process in the United States. They're going to, it's going to push them to these extremes where they're going to use the Constitution, the process that they have, and they ultimately don't have to accept a fraudulent outcome. They don't have to accept hundreds, you know, 500,000 extra votes being added in for Biden and, and everyone just go away and say, yeah, Biden won. I just don't think that that's going to happen. And ultimately, you're, in, in reality, you're, you're when you look on your phone and your smart device, I don't know if it's a smart device or, or a dumb device, because you're ultimately being dumbed down by the control that Silicon Valley has over the information flow. And while they're able to control what people really know and what they read and the news articles are going to be basically trending and the ones that are going to be censored and shadow banned, ultimately the American people themselves and, and really the state legislatures don't have to accept this uniform, ubiquitous deception that's happening. Ultimately, they can say, you know what, we've seen enough. 
we realize now that in our state there was fraud in the election, the Trump won, and we're sending our Trump uh, electors up to Washington, D.C. so that the Congress and the Senate there can accept the Trump victory. So that's kind of what's being set up in the background. There's no discussion of it. And, you know, Jake Tapper is finally going to come out and say, yep, there was a, a Biden, a Hunter Biden laptop who had, had a bunch of um, with a bunch of images of him and videos of him smoking crack and doing pornographic stuff. And the fact that the DOJ is going to investigate the Biden family. And ultimately, Biden at this point, despite claiming that he's in this office of the uh, president-elect. There really is no office of the president-elect. I mean, this is just factual reality, and he really isn't the president-elect yet. So of all these investigations of their corruption in the Biden family that are not being reported on Twitter, that are not being reported on Time Magazine, they're not being reported in the, the public space so that you can hear it, Ultimately, you have to go to some podcasts and you go to people that are really interested in these investigations and who are delving into it to, to find them. But it's not going to be in the mainstream. Okay, so Hollywood, mainstream media, uh, social media networks, everywhere in the popular social public space, you're going to be blocked or ridiculed if you suggest that Trump probably is going to win this thing. And it's really just up to him, ultimately. If he if he concedes, then he concedes and he gets out of the way and he allows this kind of fraudulent electoral system to, to push Biden into power. But ultimately, Trump just has to sit in the seat and say, I won. And there really is nothing that Biden can do to unseat him at this point. There's really no, like, maids or security personnel. There's no Secret Service agents who are going to come over to Trump and tap him on the shoulder and say, Hey, Trump, it's time for you to leave now. You lost. Ultimately, Trump is going to say, I won. The... The, uh, the different legislatures in those states that were fraudulent are going to continue to fight this out. They're not just going to let it go, despite whatever McConnell said. I heard what McConnell said in the Senate, but it didn't really sound like he was giving much room for, for uh, Biden-Harris. Uh, campaign. It seemed like it was more of a ridicule and kind of an inside joke because he said, you know, congratulations to your 40 plus years of being here in Washington. I mean, it, it seems like it's Mitch McConnell's way of just kind of tongue in cheek. Um, tipping the hat to these these this this fraudulent and now disgraced Biden Harris campaign. Their team is a total disgrace and it's kind of embarrassing. I think they're in a panic mode there in Washington DC. It's not prevalent. It's not obvious when you look on the news aggregators, when you look at headlines, you know, that you just see all this contempt and vitriol that's just put forth constantly on on Trump. So there's just constant Trump hate all the time. And so for the thinker, for the American, you know, spectator on the outside of this, it becomes obvious that the the media system that the deep state power structure really hates Trump and we're all supposed to put on a mask, hate Trump and and you know and and try to you know support the Biden situation, but in reality, despite who you're you're voting for, you, you, you know, whether you voted for Biden or Trump, it would have been unacceptable if there was millions and hundreds of thousands of false ballots for Trump. And if there was millions of false uh, votes in the Dominion voting system that pushed Trump over the top and gave him a false victory, that would be illegal and it would be unconscionable. And the same thing is true on the other side of it when it's your candidate and you really want Biden to win if they used false tactics. And I think that's really the problem here is that they, they, they cheated too much. They went way over the top. They cheated so obviously and so desperately. Uh, they had to overcome a, a substantial uh, Trump lead. 
in the millions. So they had to produce literally, I don't know, four or five million false votes, false ballots, false Dominion voting machine irregularities, you know, the rigging of the voting machines to to give um, Trump votes over to Biden so that they could have this 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 appearance, this optics of a of a Biden Harris win when it's really just all fictitious and it's all fraudulent. So I think that the people on the other side of it who are accepting this fraudulent win are not questioning it. Who have drank and drunk the Kool Aid of the social media giants, the tech giants, the technocracy out there that's just decided that they'll they'll determine what reality is for for us all. And they've decided early on what the election results were really going to be before they were even tabulated. Uh, you know, everyone kind of knew that the fix was in. So as this is all being exposed day by day, I think it's like uh, watching a slow-moving train wreck at this point. Because ultimately, the the country and the grown-ups in the government don't have to accept a, f- a fraudulent Biden-Harris victory. They just don't have to accept it. And you know, that's what the whole point of the Electoral College is. If there was millions of fraudulent votes that were later, you know, dumpster fired or burned, all these different security envelopes that the ballots, the mail-in ballots supposedly came in were completely destroyed or they never existed at all. There's no signature verification forms. So all these different COVID-19 regulations that the, the polling locations and the, the, the state uh, governments decided they would just employ in violation of the the, the, the constitutional voting process, once all that's really thrown out and you really can't count those questionable ballots anymore, and you're seeing that in the Wisconsin um, state court, Supreme Court there in Wisconsin, I mean, things are basically starting to slowly turn around as more and more of this evidence is being produced. And the fact that you destroyed the evidence or that you destroyed the envelopes or that you you don't have any envelopes to show, I mean, all all these irregularities are going to be um, really... And it's not. There's not a jury of our peers or twelve juries that have to decide this. The jury that has to decide this are the state legislatures. The state legislatures are the ones that Giuliani has been sitting in front of. They have been meticulously going to each state legislature to show that there was this massive fraud and that they have no reason to honor or keep faith with these false results so that the popular election is completely moot, it's completely corrupted, and that they really need to ultimately cast the presidential, the deciding presidential electors to Washington, D.C. on their own. And that's what they've done. On one side, you have the, the Biden electors, and as those are being proven to be fraudulent, the standing of those Biden electors in Washington, D.C. is going to become more and more undermined so that they have less and less confidence. And, you know, as the as the media scrum starts to surround them, as people start to ask more and more questions, it's going to become more and more clear that the Biden electors are really fraudulent electors. And so that the Trump electors were sent up to represent the true will of the people. So you have to understand the dynamic here. If the will of the people was to vote for Trump and that there was a huge conspiratorial action on the side of the Biden campaign on the Dominion voting systems on the the, uh, the mail-in ballots and on the counting process and, the, and in a hundred different ways they were able to basically wag the dog and change the outcome of the election from what the American people wanted to what the Biden clique wanted then ultimately the, the state legislatures have no interest, they have no reason to to serve Biden's uh, cause in these fraudulent proceedings and these in, in, in these criminal actions, and 
ultimately I think that Trump is going to start to, you know, you're going to start to see people arrested. You're going to see that this whole thing is going to come unraveled in a most epic way. And so Trump has a lot of time. It seems like he's running out of time, but it really ultimately has a lot of time to slow, slow drip out this information and to build up the pressure on this whole situation so that the appearance of a de facto win in all corners here everywhere you look on the internet every different app you go onto your phone there's this kind of ubiquitous censorship and narrative control so they're going to control the whole discussion the dialogue to the point that anyone who resists this idea that Biden has an automatic victory and that there was just a totally clean election and that really 80 million people came out and voted for Biden is really just only permissible discussion and conversation that's really allowed to be had. So as Trump really looks over the different evidence here and as he sends his lawyers and as people investigate, and each of the states, too, are, are motivated to root out any kind of corruption or fraudulent electoral uh, election shenanigans that were taking place, they don't have any reason to allow there to be a criminal fraud in their state. So there's a lot of senators and congressmen and judges in these different states in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan who have an, have, uh, you know, an axe to grind. They have to make their name in politics. They have to sh show their, the, the people that they represent in their districts that they're going to fight the good fight. And they're not just going to, you know, Biden-Harris can't pay off everyone in the entire world to do uh, their bidding. Ultimately, there's people that are going to be self-motivated. Um, there's going to be lawyers, journalists, and politicians who are just going to say, Hey, just, hey, wait a second. We haven't drunk the Kool-Aid of this, and we can see that there's an iron curtain of, uh, of ignorance that's being descended and lowered down over this whole discussion. But it looks like that the election, presidential election of 2020, was totally fraudulent, and there was a lot of illegal activity that helped try to push Biden over the finish line. You can see early in the, in the night, and that night in, uh, in November 3rd when they were doing the, the counting process, you can see that Trump had a huge lead and was going to win, and ultimately they stopped the counting. They brought in a bunch of fraudulent votes. There was a whole bunch of computer hacking, and it's interesting that the uh, the CISA, the Cybersecurity Federal Agency, um, recently had its uh, had the head fired because he said that it was a safe and clean election, and it turns out that that was completely untrue. So, if this was a widespread conspiracy to try to make sure that Biden was put into office, then Trump has nothing better to do with his time than to totally pull the strings of it and just completely unwind it, the whole thing. So he couldn't unwind a conspiracy to commit fraud on a criminal level in this election if there was nothing there. But if there is something there, he can pull at the threads of it and he can totally untangle it and ultimately people are going to start falling and, you know, we will have people that will start to Right now, there are subpoenas going out all over Michigan. The the the, the, the head of Dominion and Smartmatic are being subpoenaed. Um, uh, over ten state legislatures are fighting and sending different elector electors to Washington than than Biden expects. So to, to think that you can just put on Google, look at the different censored stories, the the, the acceptable stories, and just say, "Hey, Biden won," is completely. Um, really deranged because you're not really seeing the full picture, and this is what you have when you have these this dichotomy, this split in reality, these dueling echo chambers where people are just are going to just decide to imbibe the information that they would like to hear, and that it's acceptable to them. And later on, it's going to be totally 
Um, I think on the Trump side, everyone's aware that he might lose. He, he could lose this. But on the Biden side, I think the people are, are totally brainwashed to the extent that, that they're not prepared to find out that the Congress is going to decide to, to re-elect Trump. And ultimately, they're going to choose to hear out these complaints about fraud. They're going to look at the evidence, and they're going to see Biden lost. There was a bunch of illegal activity, and Trump is going to just be the next president of the United States. So I think that's that's the, the thing that you're not allowed to say. Those are the thoughts that you're not allowed to think. You're not allowed to be suspicious of this election if you think that there was voting irregularities and, and fraudulent ballots and Dominion voting machine um, manipulation then you have to be cast out of polite society. You have to be pushed out. And I think that's ultimately what Google and Twitter and Facebook and Silicon Valley are in the process of doing now. They're trying to find out who is the dissenting voices and to, to squash them. So you're not allowed to, to, you know, to have a different opinion. You have to have this universal single mindset that they're trying to produce. And ultimately, I think they're trying to take away the, the POTUS Twitter handle. They're, they're going to do all these different things. And ultimately, as the evidence is being borne out and it becomes clear that Trump is going to win, I think that there'll be a total blackout. This confederacy, uh, this deep state confederacy that they call it, that really has to do with keeping the central bank, Federal Reserve power structure in place and you know having to do with the, the Hollywood celebrity elite and the Silicon Valley um, technocracy elite that, that's out there. And, and, and it really has to do with them maintaining their power. So it's really about all of John Brennan and James Comey and James Clapper and really just the Obama intelligence operatives who really brought this on themselves by going so hard against the Trump campaign, trying to destroy the Trump camp campaign when before it had even been inaugurated into office, when they realized that Hillary Clinton was going to lose. And so I think this was just a replay of the 2016 election where they gained it out for the last four years and they decided that they were just not going to allow there to be a technical win by the Trump administration. So they had every different trick in the book. They had different counties, different areas, and different swing states, and they had it all set up. Um, they even brought in the different ballots in different areas overnight, and they were they were acting like the deep state cabal that the um, the right accuses them of being. So they they didn't they were not interested in really hearing the um, the judgment or the will of the American people. It was a coup d'état against the democratic process. It was really the Obama acolytes who are just trying to get back into power. Um, you already see this, Samantha Powers, and so some of these other uh, Obama sycophants uh, that are out there that are interested in just getting themselves back into power, you know, surrounding Hillary Clinton and the whole Clinton situation. So it's just going to bring back another era of corruption if Biden gets in, into play. I mean, it's obvious that Biden is a completely geriatric uh, moron who's completely shot out. His brain is, doesn't work or function anymore at all. And that his his family is a bunch of corrupt crackhead, uh, stripper dating, sellouts to China. And, 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 and it's so obvious on the, the, the face of it that, that the Biden family is corrupt and really perverted. They have an issue with sexual perversion that's, that's just completely demonstrable and that it's really sickening. 
and ultimately you're you're having them being pushed into power by the deep state movers and shakers, uh, the George Soros types, those people out there who are not interested in letting the United Nations lose power, the World Trade Organization to lose its power, the World Health Organization. These are the globalists that are not interested in seeing what Trump's going to do next. So they have to, they have, they're completely invested, they're all in, and they have committed uh, a, a, a level of traitorous criminality here against America so that they're serving the Chinese and the Russian hackers, interested in serving their masters there in China and ultimately you know, serving their masters there in the European Union too. Now, and as I'm looking through the different headlines, we have all this criticism of, the, of Trump at every possible level that's almost inhuman. It's incomprehensible level of you know, criticism. You'd think that the man was really just the Antichrist. And then you have this adulation, this glowing adoration of Joe Biden that's really just sickening because he's a complete moron. And ultimately, the tech giants and Twitter and the the MSN, uh, NBC webpage and all these different groups know that, that Biden is really just a sellout. He's been a, a Washington swamp creature for 40 years. He hasn't done anything. I mean, be, before he was, when he was younger, he was marching around supporting white racists. And now, down in the uh, in the Georgia uh, senator Senate election, he's supporting this this black fellow who is an out and out anti semite racist against white people. So you know he's gone from supporting white racists to now black liberal communist racists who hate white people. So there's just the, the Democratic Party has completely come unhinged as it's you know trying to move forward these different um, nonsensical platforms of propaganda. So you have the New Green Deal, you have the pro-Palestine, anti-Israel platform. You have this, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, all white people are racist platform. You have all these extremists, and you have the communists, the neo-Marxists front that's coming into the party, and ultimately you, we're bringing in this this monstrous amalgamation of corruption and anti-American uh, zealotry. Really, it's just extremism. And really, these are the the purposes and the outlet of of China. China is looking for these extremists, for these anti-American uh, political agitators, to serve the purpose of empowering China and disempowering American uh, freedom and American democratic institutions you know, across the, the West. Here, so this is a f- existential fight that we're engaged in, and I just don't think that Trump is ultimately to just put it down and go away and go to. Uh, go to retire in Florida. I mean, it's possible. I mean, obviously it's possible that uh, on, on the other side of the spectrum, the left is pushing really hard to try to shoo in their de facto victory, to try to just quiet and quell any discussion about any kind of voter fraud or Dominion voting machines that could have Smartmatic, um, the whole discussion about the solar winds hack that had to do with the Dominion voting machines that probably allowed, you know, Chinese and Russian actors to come in and just completely screw with the election in any kind of way they wanted. And all the, uh, the COVID uh, regulations that allowed for people to change rules around the polling stations and allow the actual election process at the election, the polling locations. 
so that people, observers, couldn't allow the counting process. So all these COVID um, restrictions are ultimately unconstitutional just because there's a COVID situation out there doesn't mean that you can suddenly just reformat, retool the entire uh, election process in order to favor the candidate that you would like to win. So ultimately, cooler heads are going to prevail. There's a lot of people within the judiciary, within the Supreme Court, within these different state Supreme Courts, and within the legislators that don't really have any reason to just let this go and to just you know let Biden win without any kind of struggle. So I think there ultimately is going to be a struggle here. And we can see on one side, we can see that there's a lot of media pressure. We could see McConnell uh, who finally came out in the Senate and called uh, Joe Biden president-elect. And the media takes that as a huge uh, concession and a, and a huge victory on their part because they're really just trying to really pull off this fraud. So in any any area where they can you know start to see the Republicans give in to their mode of interpreting reality here and to their the, the narrative that they're putting forth in order to describe this as a new Biden-Harris uh, presidential victory, they're going to take advantage of it. But on the other side, you have to recognize that right here on the front of MS uh, Microsoft Network, msn.com, I can see a news uh, article that shows that on the Democratic, on the liberal left side of this whole thing, that there are breaks and that they're starting to recognize that, they're, that the Biden victory is far from complete. Just to make that point, I'll, I'll read this news article here in The Hill, and this is being posted on the front of SN.com right there in their search engine. You can see that this story is being posted. And I'm sure that um, it says Jeffrey D. Mayer is the contributor who did this article, and I'm sure he's going to take a lot of heat for just basically just having this really totally rational discussion in this article. And he's going to point out here, and I'll just go ahead and read it. It says, no Biden hasn't won yet. One more nightmare scenario. So with the Supreme Court's rejection of the Texas lawsuit, it's over, right? Not so fast. Trump has one more card to play, depending on whether Republicans in Congress are more loyal to Trump than they are to the country. After the electoral votes are cast, they have to be accepted by Congress. By law, the House and Senate meet together on January 6th, and if any state's ballots are changed by one member of the House and Senate, the chambers must meet separately and vote on the challenge. Given that 126 members of Congress signed on to the Texas lawsuit to overturn Joe Biden's victory, and that many GOP senators have not accepted Biden as the president-elect, some states are going to be challenged. Here's where things get interesting. The controlling federal law, the Electoral Count Act, the ECA, is more than 100 years old, opaque, and has been has never been fully used, and it may not even be constitutional. The Congress over which the old vice president will be presiding will be the new one which is Pence. Sworn in January 3rd, the new House, narrowly Democratic, will vote down any challenge, but the Senate, something very different could occur. Let's suppose that the balance is 52 to 48, Republican, and blah, 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 blah. It talks about Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and all these questionable votes. And even if the Senate votes to uphold the challenges, the ECA has a tie-breaking provision. Any slate of electors that is certified by their state's governor will be accepted at the House and Senate and it disagree. Biden, again, could win. Thus, the New York Times assumes that Republican challenges to the electoral votes would be futile. But if the Senate never finishes voting, it's going to go on and, and just point out the fact that the, the, um, the, the certification of the election and this, the sending in of the electors to Washington, D.C. is far from a done deal. 
and ultimately as they're starting to prove more and more of the election fraud and it is empowering the 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 Republican side of the the Congress and the Senate to really make the choice to, to choose the the Trump electors and ultimately this could produce a Trump victory and I think that that's really what we're going to see happen here as we're moving forward and ultimately you know no one wants to really talk about it ultimately this whole idea is completely censored and you have to understand that those who are interested in supporting the Communist Chinese Party and who are who are really enacting this coup d'etat this overthrow of the American government by um, dismissing and fraudulently turning over the the will of the American people to vote for Donald Trump and to place him as the next president of the United States. Ultimately, this whole scheme, um, these power players have a lot of influence in Silicon Valley. They can control what people's cell phones are telling them. They can control the news articles that people are allowed to read. They're able to, you know, on CNN, you know, Jake Tapper and all them can really just control the narrative of, of what people are hearing uh, at, a, at a broad scale. So you really have side of the the discussion here, and that being the fact that Trump is pushing to become the next president and to assert that he was the, the real winner despite the fraudulent election results. And ultimately that the whole discussion is going to be pushed to the fringe. So you're taking um, 75 million people or 73 million people and their votes and you're pushing them out of the public space and pushing them into the fringe so that their ideas and their opinions are no longer heard. And when you do that, you've created a false environment. You've, you've created a literal echo chamber where you're only hearing what you would, you know, Jack Dorsey or you know, the different, they're the Facebook kind of tyrants. They're just really going to only allow the opinion that they want to hear expressed only. And when you do that, you're really empowering the most extreme segments of uh, in the right in the Re Republican Party, disallowing any dissent or any alternative or voices of opposition from from being from speaking. So that really what we're seeing is is the enshrinement election fraud so that elections no longer have any meaning and you're debasing the entire democratic process of the entire nation. And that's really just to uphold one winner one time and one election process and you're corrupting the entire future process for going forward. So I think that's really why we're going to see some of the um, the Supreme Court and some of the, the elements within the federal government begin to step in and to take control of the situation. And ultimately I don't think that Biden is going to really be inaugurated or have his power. And if he is, if he ultimately is, he'll be a totally disgraced presidency who is really being indicted on so many different levels. There's going to be, there's a special counsel, and this wasn't, this one isn't just based on some kind of fake Russia hoax, but this is really based on the fact that the Bidens have taken tens and tens of millions of dollars from China over the course of time and enriched themselves, um, really serving the interests of our enemies. And so his presidency is going to be completely fraught with 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 problems that so that he'll just be a completely disempowered and neutered president. And Kamala Harris can't really do anything either. She's she can try to step into the presidency, but to, to wield that kind of power and to and to have the the State Department respect you or the military respect you, be able to put together an actual governing a cohesive 
workable government is not such a simple thing right now for for Biden Harris campaign. I think that they're they're just intent on taking power for power's sake, just for sheer political avarice, and ultimately to try to sidestep some of the indictments and some of the investigations into the Biden and really uh, Kamala Harris herself, some of their the financial dealings, and ultimately we can expect them to try to pack the core and do some of the other extreme uh, new Green Deal things that they've been trying to get at, and this is all while we're printing out trillion dollar Federal Reserve deficits, and there's no move to address this kind of collapse. So this is how we're going to get to this point where we have this great reset. So when I say that this is an existential fight, it really is. Ultimately, Trump has no reason to give up, and the American people have every every right and expectation that Trump is going to continue to fight and ultimately cast down this whole push for, for Biden-Harris to create this neo-Marxist coalition government with China and with all this you know, Chinese corruption, Chinese communist corruption that we've been seeing that's coming out. And ultimately, the, the tax indictments are going to go against Hunter Biden. And all that was completely repressed by the, the technocracy, by by Twitter and, and Google. I mean, the the, uh, the New York Post article was actually deplatformed. New York Post is deplatformed off Twitter just because they said that there was some issues surrounding Hunter Biden. And now Jake Tapper is going to come out and say that all that was really true. I mean, ultimately, you got censored and you got flagged on Twitter and you had a little veil put over your comments as, uh, as fact-checked incorrectly. And ultimately, we're going to find out that all those fact-checkers were just political bullshit. And so the American people are really going to see through all this. And you can control all these instruments of, of media, of social media, of internet activity. You can control Google. You can control a lot. You can control Biden. You can control Hollywood. You can control what's popular. Um, but ultimately, you can't control what the American people are going to think. And when they're starting to recognize that there's this huge confederacy of neo-Marxist leftist collaborators, we're not talking about liberals. Liberals are good. We need liberty. We need liberation. We need libertines. We're talking about the communist, neo-Marxist leftists out there that are here to topple the government and to, to, to spend us into oblivion and basically weaken, just, just the way that Obama weakened the military. They're here to destroy the United States and to use the apparatus and the institutions and the democratic functions to destroy and to win at all means, at every means available to them. That's why they had. They didn't hesitate to, to cheat on the election. They didn't hesitate to, to hack into the Dominion voting systems and the Dominion um, uh, the Dominion officials and the VPs at, at Dominion and Smartmatic guaranteed to Antifa that they would produce a Biden victory, even though it was impossible. Even though I think Biden only got 43 million votes and Trump got 72 million, you know, they were able to manipulate various states. I mean, we can see spikes during the night where, where suddenly Biden has 400,000 uh, more votes in one 30-minute period. So, I mean, it's obvious election fraud. I don't think they care. They just really wanted to get to the next stage of their great reset. Ultimately, they had to, they didn't have a war. Um, the COVID thing is, is breaking down. That's no longer really an excuse because now we have a vaccine. So it's really time to take off the mask. It's time to go back to being normal Americans. We can clean our minds from all the brainwash that we, the, the media has been putting us through. The propaganda mill has been putting us through it. But ultimately, it's time for us to take back our minds, unmask ourselves. If we want to take a vaccine, take a vaccine. 
but it's ultimately time for us to take our country back. I think that many, many people's eyes are being opened to how much that the, the, the deep state cabal, the, the international set, the kind of the globalist billionaire power structure that's out there that's tied with the Georgetown set that control, really controls Washington politics and really directs our nation, how much control it really has over our lives and over our thinking. So there's really no law that's been set that, that says you have to wear a mask, uh, but ultimately, you know, this whole kind of paradigm has been raised that if you don't wear a mask, then you might end up having people complain. You might end up having to deal with cops in some areas. You might be arrested. Thanksgiving dinner might be have a SWAT team come through and kick in your door if you had too many people at your Thanksgiving dinner. And these are all violations of the Constitution. And these are these are supposedly the attempts of the government to protect the citizenry against the virus. But these were really ultimately uh, a, a, a global governance, a deep state world government uh, of elites that are trying to control our country and control what happens all around the world so that everywhere you go if you know if you listen to, uh, carefully to what people are saying if you go in Afghanistan or if you go to Kabul or if you go to Peru I mean everywhere people are being required to wear these masks and there's really no sense of where this direction is coming from it's just coming from above it's coming from the people who tell us what to do uh, you know if you're on a college campus then the administrative staff and their bosses are telling you or if you have a job if you want to keep your job or if you want to if you want to enter into a business or on every level you're being informed that and dictated to it's it's really just a, a global dictatorship and it's not coming from one individual but it's coming from an entire cabal of individuals who are really determining for us how life is going to be and how our lives are going to be and so you have Fauci coming out and saying that maybe this pandemic will last into another year, another maybe another two years, maybe next summer. And, and I mean, they're just kind of arbitrarily making it up as they go. And these are supposed to be scientists. These are supposed to be the the intelligentsia that we all need to listen to. And it's really just time for us, whether we're Republicans or Democrats, to recognize that we're being condescended to, and we're being treated like like we're, we're being treated like children, like little peasants. And ultimately, we can determine for ourselves what's best. And it looks like to me that there's really no reason to wear these masks. So these masks really don't help anything. They're really just stifling, and they're really just symbols of, of control over us. And, and as I'm going through some of these news articles, I can see some people that are questioning um, what's happening with Biden. I can see a whole lot of criticism of, of Trump, but I constantly see these pictures, the, the Christmas cards for the royal family for the last 10 years, all these pictures of Prince Harry uh, and his wife and, and Kate Middleton and all the royals, and, and there's this constant gushing and adulation and this worship of the, the, the royals there in England and it's obvious to me that, that it's just exactly what Voltaire said and he said if you want to know who rules over you all you need to do is find out who you're not allowed to criticize. And so in this case, we're not allowed to criticize the royals. We're not allowed to criticize the, the monarchy of England, okay? You're not allowed to do it if you're on MSNBC. You're not allowed to do it if you're on Twitter or Google. Even if you're Puff Daddy or, or you know, you're not allowed to criticize. You're, you know, so ultimately, this is really where we can see that the power structure that's directing all these events is really coming from. And... Now, on another subject here, I, I hear a really interesting discussion that's coming up surrounding the question of, of and this is becoming highly political, but the, the question of homosexuality and really where we stand. And, and we have this, this, this phalanx of political correctness across college campuses, across the, uh, the re-education programs that are happening within government, within academia and within all these different areas 
of our cultural social life. So in Hollywood, um, the big tech think tanks are, are going to disallow any kind of differing opinion. So you know, obviously, we don't we, you don't we don't like haters. Nobody likes racism, or nobody likes uh, you know people who you know, let's use a word homophobic. I mean, are, are you afraid of gay people, or, or if you just don't like gay people, it's something that you're not familiar with. It's not part of your culture. So when you see homosexual people, you know, it throws people off. You know, it, it's okay to be educated and learn that. That people are out there, they have homosexual lifestyles, and that's really not very unusual. If you look back at history, we can go back to the ancient empires in the past and see that this is something that's been with us as a part of our normal society for a very long time. Now, the question is, when we get into the protection of all things homosexual, so it goes past like the idea that there might be a homosexual couple who wants to have the recognition of being married, who wants to have legal standing so that they can go into hospitals and care for their loved ones, even though they don't have a typical heterosexual male-female relationship, they want to be recognized in a legal setting so that, that their their relationship is qualified as a marriage and that their their lives have connected and and, and been united and in and, and that way that we understand as matrimony. And so we're going well past that kind of basis, which is totally reasonable, to the LGBTQ thing, to where we're getting into the transgendered uh, identity politics, and ultimately the question of where are we empowering unhealthy behavior? Where are we calling people who have legitimate mental illness and who are you're participating in very dangerous behaviors, and we're just going to cover that as something that's uh, you know unable to be criticized, unable to be questioned because of the current state of political correction and political ideology. So, when we when it comes down to the question of are we going to allow twelve and thirteen year old girls to take body and mind changing hormones like testosterone and, and these different kind of powerful medications that totally alter your body? Are we going to allow those children to take these kind of powerful medications because they have been around other peers that decided that they're, they no longer want to be girls, but they want to be men. And in order to make that happen, because they know everything because they're 13, they're going to go behind their parents' back and go ahead and start taking these hormones from a doctor without a prescription and the school's and the school administrations, the teachers, and the, and the counselors, and even the doctors are going to conspire and lie to the parents so the teenage girls can receive these hormone, these gender reassigning hormone uh, supplements, even the, even against the wishes of their own parents. Side of the discussion, you would hear people say, "Well, listen, it's very dangerous to force people who don't feel comfortable in their own skin and who feel like they're really is their real gender is a man and that they no longer want to be identified as a female and that life is unlivable and that it's an excruciating, um, uncomfortable, and unpleasant experience to be continued to to be forced to live as a girl when they feel inside that their real gender is a man and so that the only safe 
sane um, and humane thing to do is to let these individuals who, who feel like that they need to become a man to take these uh, gender reassigning chemicals in order to become a man and they needed to do that early because when they're older they don't want to live their adult life as as a, a female but they want to live their adult life as a male so they need to take these uh, gender reassigning hormones at a younger age and of course since the parents aren't going to really be helpful we'll just lie to the parents and we'll just take the kids in school and take them to start taking these hormones um, this is the kind of debate that we're getting we're going past the convenience of allowing people to have a matrimony status uh, between same-sex couples that wasn't recognized earlier on in our history and now we're going into having uh, kids who haven't even finished puberty yet deciding that they're going to reassign their genders. And this is just all part and parcel of the same political discussion. So we really need to do do what we always do and get into a very difficult conversation here about what is perversion and what is really healthy relationships. And I think, I don't know how, how many people you've been exposed to in the world and how much experience you have, but I, I've seen it both ways. I've seen it where I've found very healthy, happy gay couples who seem to be very well adjusted. They seem to be they're educated. They seem to be uh, monogamous. Um, like I said uh, before, I, I mean, I don't know that all homosexual relationships are just automatically natural. I don't know that that's the case. I think that some people are acting out um, and on a neurotic and a, and, a, and a psychopathological way, and that ultimately, you know, these mental illnesses they can't be hidden behind the fact that somebody just well, I'm gay. Well, you can be gay, but it, ultimately, if you have mental illness uh, and you have perversity and you're acting out uh, inappropriately towards children or you're having other dysfunctions, you can't that can't be masked behind being gay. Okay, and people who are, who are trying to identify as gay are also people that can deal with intense mental illness or a sexual uh, repression or having, in many cases, having been um, uh, sexually molested when they were younger. And these are all really lead to problems that can be expressed as an adult. And people are, are many times acting out in the most unhealthy and most destructive sexual practices, and they're not being addressed. Because people are simply saying, well, you can't criticize me. You can't question my the state of my condition because uh, I'm a protected victim group. I'm, I'm a homosexual. And, and, and that's not always the case. Sometimes people are being pushed or being assigned to this category of LBGTQ, but really they're, they're really sexual predators and they're really uh, having sexual perversity issues with having sexual perversity. And we need to be able to distinguish the two. We, you can't just go into the into the uh, the the LGBTQ community and be protected uh, on all levels of, of sexual deviation. So ultimately, like I said, I've seen people who are claiming to be uh, homosexuals who are, are who are struggling with terrible sexual deviation, terrible perversion, and have terrible. Uh, struggles with mental illness and then on the other side of it i've seen people who are perfectly healthy perfectly mentally healthy people who are homosexual couples who are fit to be parents and to have kids kids who have no home who need to be adopted somewhere should certainly go to these groups just like any, any couple you could find a couple who's a heterosexual couple who's healthy who's well adjusted doing well and who are parent material and then you have heterosexual couples who are who are drug addicted who are perverted who have mental illness and you know just them saying well i'm a heterosexual couple doesn't 
doesn't get to shield them from the discussion we need to have about their, their mental illness or their sexual deviations or their perversity. And so we're going to get into this discussion. And let's listen to a very interesting interview that we have here. The Daily Signal, and this is really going to be Nicole Russell, and she's going to bravely come out and discuss what um, the United Kingdom has long been on the progressive end of the trans transgender issue. So uh, when they pump the brakes, America should pay attention. And this is here on this uh, this podcast with this interview with uh, Nicole Russell. A high court in the United Kingdom recently ruled that children 16 years old and younger cannot be treated with puberty-blocking hormone drugs unless a court specifically rules otherwise. So let's get into this discussion that we're not allowed to have because now we're haters. Now we're people who are, are unscientific and we're really, apparently now we're going to be homophobic, afraid of, of, of gay people. And really we're going to get into this discussion that has nothing to do with people who have same-sex relationships which is really like far from taboo anymore in 2020, but we're getting into this issue of gender reassignment surgery and the chemicals that you take beforehand and whether you should do that when you're 12, 13, or 14. We're going to get into this totally verboten conversation and um, let's listen to the interview. A court in the UK recently ruled that children 16 years and younger cannot be prescribed puberty-blocking hormone drugs. And the U.S. needs to take notice. Nicole Russell, a Daily Signal contributor, and I recently spoke on the Problematic Women podcast about this case and the impact the transgender craze is having on people across the nation. We are so excited to share that interview with you here on today's show for my conversation with Nicole Russell as we discuss the impact of the transgender movement on young people and society as a whole. give our audience just a quick heads up that some of the content of the following interview is sensitive. I'm joined by Nicole Russell, a journalist and a contributor at The Daily Signal. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So one of the issues that we try to really consistently cover on this show is the transgender movement and specifically how that movement affects children and women. Nicole, as a journalist, you cover this issue pretty extensively. Of course, over the past several years, we have seen a, a really major spike in individuals and particularly young women coming out as transgender, taking hormones, puberty blockers, and even in some instances, having those physically altering surgeries. You recently wrote a piece uh, for the Daily Signal titled UK Issues Landmark Ruling Protecting Kids from Life-Altering Hormone Replacement Therapy. Can you explain this lawsuit in, in the UK that you wrote about and what that landmark ruling was? Absolutely. So in the UK, there is a gender clinic uh, called the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust. Um, they're the only, you know, clinic in the UK that uh, facilitates um, transitions. Uh, I guess you could call them to another gender. And uh, there was a young woman named Kira Bell who uh, went to the clinic when she was about 16. She told them that she wanted to transition 
to mail, and they helped her uh, start that process. So she did a uh, some hormonal replacement therapy, uh, where she started taking, um, you know, cross hormones. She started taking testosterone, and I believe she also had a mastectomy, um, and so she could begin, you know, this this quote unquote um, medical transition toward toward male, and then. Then she learned, you know, over time she decided she did not want to be a male. She did not want to live that way. And she regretted the transition that she had done. She she regretted the changes she'd made through puberty blockers and um, hormones and through surgery. And so she actually sued this gender clinic. And the case eventually, uh, as cases do here, you know, worked its way up to their high court. And the high court found last week um, that what the gender clinic had done in facilitating her transition was wrong. And they basically ruled that going forward, this clinic cannot help children under the age of 16 do transitions like this anymore because uh, they found, they used her testimony, they, they reviewed her testimony and basically came to the decision that children under 16 cannot understand the ramifications of taking testosterone or, or estrogen or puberty blockers or anything else. And so they don't know what they're doing to their bodies. They don't understand that these um, choices are in most cases uh, life altering and unable to be reversed. And so they decided um, to basically, you know, ban them they were banned the clinic from being able to do them. And so now um, she she said about the ruling, and I wrote this in my piece, that she was very pleased with their decision. Uh, and she feels like it will help uh, young people as they kind of navigate these waters. So I think as far as it relates to the United States, you know, the UK has always been slightly ahead of us uh, in terms of the culture war, in terms of uh, the transgender issue. They've been very sort of welcoming to the concept of people transitioning. And so I think this is a huge uh, step toward protecting children from making decisions that would alter their bodily chemistry for life. Yeah, I, it, it's definitely uh, incredible to see the UK make this decision, and I, I really hope that the U.S. is paying attention, because in some states in America, kids can start receiving these drugs without parental consent as young as 15, even 13 years old. They can begin taking these drugs that will literally alter their body, uh, potentially for forever, uh, do irreversible damage. Yes. It's been really frustrating to observe, you know, the transgender movement as a whole first began, I think, just as a frustration maybe among adults and you watched adults transition slowly and I think now it's really has moved to teenagers and it has become as Abigail Schreier talks about in her book kind of a contagion you know it's really spread almost as like the cool thing to do and so teenagers are making these choices and doctors are often you know letting them 
make decisions to change their bodily chemistry in a way that can't be undone. Uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of, of detransitioners out there. In fact, there was a piece um, in a London newspaper a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, about detransitioners um, who have decided, you know, we tried to transition and we realized it was a mistake and now they're kind of, their body is somewhere between male and female. And so I think in the United States, it's definitely something we want to look for. I know there's been legislation um, put forth to try to, you know, put caps on, on at least these age ranges so that we can, you know, protect uh, minors from doing something they will regret. Uh, because we've often, we've found as we've researched this and as time has gone on that often um, teenagers, if they receive therapy and if they just uh, don't do any of the transitioning, uh, the medical transitions, that they often sort of come out of this phase and they realize like in their 20s, okay, they don't want to live like that anymore. And that's what we want to try to prevent here in the U.S. And I hope that we can look at the U.K. as an example and hold firm on this issue. I think that that's what made Kara Bell's testimony so incredibly powerful is she raised that. She said, you know, I, I just wish that, you know, doctors, people around me would have pushed me a little bit more of like, okay, why do you actually want to take those steps? But she brought up that one of the things that really motivated her to keep going down this path of, of transitioning was encouragement that she received from the internet find this interview on Daily Signal and it's a fascinating interview and we'll just leave it right there and we're going to go on with some more uh, subject matter but I, I really find it reprehensible and totally demoralizing and really that's when I start to use the word perversity because we're getting into a level of perversity here that I think is just unconscionable and it's really just it's just disgusting and it doesn't have to do with social mores it has to do with really constructively understanding what human morality and human decency is all about. So it, it reminds me of Pete Buttigieg when he went and had, and, 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 and look, I look at him as probably falling into the, into the classification of one of these couples who's who's healthy, well-adjusted, making a decision that they are in love, they're a same-sex couple, they, they, they can't live without each other, they're virtually married as far as we understand matrimony to be. And even though this goes against the grain of, of some of our kind of Judeo-Christian ideas or, or what have you, this is what American freedom is all about. They live in a country where they're free to live their best life now and to be happy and to pursue happiness. So if this is what happiness is for them, then so be it. Uh, but w when you bring a little eight or nine-year-old boy out onto the stage who, who says that he's a gay, he's homosexual, and he's obviously being under the influence of homosexual people that are around him that have, that, that have proliferated this whole idea into his mind so that he's being sexualized as a little boy, it's really a form of child abuse so that a little nine-year-old boy can't just grow up with his little G.I. Joes and Transformers or play dolls or just play, play as a little boy, but he has to be inculcated with all these ideas about sexuality and, and where the you know our, our sexual genitals go, and, and it's really just, it's inappropriate. It's in, it's inappropriate to inculcate uh, sexual uh, sexuality to a nine-year-old boy in a heterosexual uh, world, and it's also inappropriate to do it in a homosexual way. I mean, little nine, eight, nine-year-old boys should be little eight, nine-year-old 
boys, they shouldn't have their their minds laden with these ideas about uh, you know, politics and, and and sexuality. It's just it's absolutely child abuse. It's actually like almost a form of child molestation. I mean, kids are going to grow up and understand that some some families have a mom and a dad, and some families have two mommies, and, and, and you know beyond that point, when you're trying to pressure a kid to express his his gender identity or his his sexual orientation when he's nine and he hasn't even gone through puberty yet. I mean, this is a little boy who's who, who functionally isn't even sexually functional at nine. He's he hasn't even hit puberty. This is a nine-year-old boy who's just who's just really just following along with the adult influence around him, and it's absolutely reprehensible and it's horrifying. It's really just horrifying. Let's just put it out there. You have no right to sexualize or homosexualize a little nine-year-old boy. Okay, and, and, and to, to, for him to decide that he's going to be to have these kind of partners when he gets older, when he after he gets goes through puberty, after he actually becomes sexually active, sexually functional, when he becomes past adolescence, and he goes in this, you know, we're, we're talking, we haven't even hit prom yet. And we're, this kid is on the stage in the presidential election waving and, and, and telling everyone that he's gay and he's re- receiving adulation and, and positive um, attention to, to affirm that he's making a, a good life decision. But what we'll find out is that there's a high level of desistance. And we'll probably find out later on in a news article that the same little boy is going to grow up and, and happily marry Sally and have children. And he'll, he'll, he'll desist from all this propaganda that was put into his head when he was younger. He'll probably grow up and find out that he's attracted to women as almost all men are. And so that's what we're really discussing here is that ultimately if you're a man and you're growing up in the world for whatever reason you don't find women attractive, then ultimately from my point of view, there's something wrong with you. Okay, because we were designed... And ultimately, if you don't like that, if you don't like the idea that there was a, a, a causal, a deity that designed all of this, then ultimately we evolved over time to have a corresponding mate so that we have our entire mammalian physiology is constructed to be male and female. And so in this attraction between male and female, and that's going to be a hormonal response in our physiology so it's going to be pheromones which are not detectable and these ultimately are going to be the things that drive us towards this attraction so on some level are there people out there that are attracted to the same sex based on genetic differences based on physiological differences within them that drive that that's very possible but there's also people out there who are being driven to to uh, same-sex attraction because of emotional development disorders and you know, we all we have to do is look to psychoanalysis to understand that some people have psychological and neurotic tendencies that allow them to feel inadequate in their own masculinity or in their own femininity in some cases and because of these underlying insecurities are driven towards homosexual relationships and in a lot of cases people are going to to therapy and they're getting their urges towards same-sex attraction addressed in therapy because they would like to have attraction to opposite sex so this whole conversation is a lot more convoluted than it appears here trying to pick on people because of the way that they choose to live and their lifestyles. We're here to point out that in many cases, this whole political correctness kind of scheme that disallows any kind of healthy criticism of of psychological disabilities and illnesses that people are dealing with is really unhelpful and it's really ultimately unhealthy. Ultimately, we have to be able to recognize when people are having a 
tough time. And in, in this case, when people are 14 or 15 years old and they don't know anything about their, who they are yet or their lives and they haven't even finished developing as children and we're already coming out as an entire society and as a culture and across the internet and, and as far as the medical establishment and we're, we're positively affirming that these kids should, yeah, go ahead, what the hell, go ahead and just have your gender reassigned. It's no big deal. It's like taking an Advil. It's like just, you know, it's like having some kind of augmentation done. Maybe you have your nose fixed. Maybe just change your gender a little bit, take these hormones and totally just, you know, change your body forever. And then when these kids uh, grow up and later on, they want to have a high level of desistance. I mean, what's the desistance rate up to like 80% of people when they're young and they think that they're, that they're one gender or you're a little boy and you like to play with Barbie and then you grow up and you recognize that you're attracted to Barbie. Ultimately, you shouldn't have in between there taken a bunch of gender reassigning chemicals that turned your body into something else when you're not even fully formed, your brain isn't even fully developed. And so this is the kind of area we need to get into. We need to have the courage to be able to get into this discussion and instead of hiding behind political politics. And, and let's be real, these these artifices, these, these kind of ways of understanding people's lifestyles have been highly politicized. They're, they're, they're highly protected so that every kind of derangement and sexual deviation can be kind of masked underneath this, this, uh, this cloud of LGBTQ. And we need to be able to look at people and say, you know what, your particular preference, your, your sexual preference and your lifestyle has nothing to do with the fact that you don't have a right to injure these children. You don't have a right to sexualize these children and you don't have a right to carry on in some kind of maniacal uh, mental illness or unhealthy psychological condition and just carry on as if everything is normal. It's not really normal or healthy for you to, to cut your body up in order to try to feel better about yourself. And ultimately, these kind of changes, these permanent surgical changes to your body could lead to you to, to being terribly unhappy and more miserable than you ever were before, and now there's no way to address it. So people who are having gender dysmorphia, who feel like that they should be a different gender, it doesn't help them to cut their body up to try to fit their their ideas of who they should be. Because ultimately, who they should be inside is a, is a mental, psychological state that needs to be addressed through therapy. And so if we just skip the therapy, we skip the whole the part of being rational and discussing what are the underlying causes for somebody's feelings of inadequacy or their, their feeling of... of gender dysmorphia that, that, that allows them to feel like they, you know, there, there are some people out there who, who probably feel like that they should, um, touch kids inappropriately, but we don't just say, well then, you know what, by all means, and go ahead and act that out and just go ahead and just have that unhealthy illegal criminal behavior, just act it out on children because that's how you feel. We address them. We, we say, you know what, these feelings you have are unhealthy and they're, they're, they're deviated and they're perverted and you need to be medically, handled for your illness. You need to have this illness medically addressed through counseling, psychotherapy, through different levels of, of psychiatric care. And so on, on, the, on the same level, when we have a 14-year-old girl who's trying to be accepted by her peer culture, who's trying to be loved, who's trying to get a sense of who she is in the world and society, and she finds a, a subculture, a peer group that tells her that maybe she should just change her gender and she'll really be happy. And ultimately, you know, a lot of these people are experiencing a kick, a, a dopamine release from taking testosterone and it, it takes away some depression and it makes people kind of feel emotionally like they're more stable. And these are the kind of things that, that ultimately the, the, the medical establishment and, 
and the, and the entire society and the court and this, the classroom should be able to say, you know what, why don't you take a few minutes and think about it? Why don't you take a few years and just find out who you really are before you just decide that you're going to change your sexual gender? And and ultimately, this is the kind of abuse and debasement of our of our you know with coming into our society so reckless and so destructive and we really need to be able to have the courage to push back on what you know people tell us is acceptable politically correct culturally acceptable norms and really just think for ourselves and think about our, our children's happiness and think about you know what's happening to to our young people and so these are these are kids these are children who shouldn't be you know molested and they shouldn't be corrupted and they shouldn't be being encouraged to change their gender when they're just children in the middle of adolescence a lot of pseudoscience out there too that is just kind of floating around and it kind of makes it um, where you have the leftists radicals and these are are going to be like neo Jacobin style paramilitary groups and fascist groups like Antifa, even though they claim to be anti fascist, they're really just fascists and they're running around, um, burning things and, and 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 throwing feces on cops and and injuring people and stabbing people and um, really just trying to do whatever they can in a Bolshevik way to overturn our entire culture. And these are the people that we're supposed to be listening to for intellectual stability and to to really to tell us what science is supposed to be. And from this segment of the you know, radical college campuses where this whole idea of just switching your gender around is a totally normal thing to do, like when you change your shirt, is is really coming from. And and the, the, the ramifications and the consequences of it on our culture and on our young people and in, in destroyed lives is really just being silenced. So we're not even allowed to discuss this the, the outcome of whether this is even a sane way of thinking thinking. So you're just supposed to accept that this is the scientific reality, that some people are born the wrong gender, and we just go in there and nip-tuck, click-click a little bit of t- testosterone, and you just, you know, if you're a woman, you just grow you a beard, and now you're a man, no problem, and, and you'll be perfectly happy, and you'll never have any, any you know, doubt, you never have any buyer's remorse, you never try to ultimately have this desistance that's going to say, you know what, I, I suddenly realized that I don't want to, to, to be in this condition anymore, and it's too late, because you've already chopped your, your, your genitalia up, you've already changed your bone structure to be more like a man or a woman, You've already poisoned your body and done something in the most extreme way to change fundamentally the character of who you are as a person. So all this pseudoscientific theory, we have this idea that, you know what? If you're a, if you're a man who's attracted to other men and you don't have um, an attraction towards women, hey, it's just totally normal. Uh, now let's just set aside the fact that supposedly we have been evolving, um, you know, over millions and millions of years. We used to be monkeys and we used to be apes, and we evolved into these Neanderthals and into these hairless kind of ape creatures with these really big brains, and we did so um, evolving and changing over time because males and females were attracted to each other. And ultimately, if males and females weren't attracted to each other and they didn't reproduce, then we wouldn't have a civilization and we wouldn't have a, a, a humankind to even talk about. So ultimately, when it comes to the birds and the bees, just the pure, basic, scientific, biological facts of life, every creature out there, unless they're asexual, like worms, every creature out there has to find a mate that they're attracted to so that they can reproduce and that they can carry on their actual species. So ultimately, this idea that it's totally natural for us to deviate as as a culture and as an animal 
and to turn aside from being attracted to the opposite sex and to somehow be sexually attracted to the same sex doesn't produce a sexual result. It doesn't produce the, the pairing of genetic materials. It doesn't reproduce offspring. Okay, so ultimately, if you're not attracted to the opposite sex, then it's not sex. It's not sexuality. Maybe you're, you know, having an orgasmic experience. Maybe you're having a masturbatory experience with a partner who's the same sex, but you can't really actually call that a sexual experience in reality because in order for there to be sexes or sexuality, you have to have a male and a female. You have to have gender opposites. So let's just get into reality and stop trying to, to make things as we want it to be opposed to actually how things actually stand. And ultimately, when we started to get into the scientific question here, we have to recognize that on some level, people aren't ultimately aren't deciding to become gay on their own, but there are contributing factors. So many times, what we're finding through science is that if you're the youngest son in a family, you're most likely going to be the one who's most likely going to choose to become gay. So what we're finding is that there's many factors like a lack of affection by a male uh, in, the, in the home, a male family member, and so that people grow up and they're, when they're young, before they're sexualized, when they're eight and nine, before they have any sexual feelings, and they have a deep, needed, um, uh, a deep need for male, or in some cases, if it's, if it's the case of the female, female attention. So if you're a young man and you're the youngest son and you don't get very much attention from your father, then you craved male attention. And as you came up into your adolescence and you had started to have sexual feelings, you started to desire male attention. And ultimately you develop sexual, uh, a, a homosexual orientation because of, because of issues surrounding nurture rather than issues surrounding nature. So if you had a, a big absence of, of a male role model, of a male attention and a male affection, and you, and you deeply craved it, which is perfectly normal when you're a child developing, then ultimately, as you got older, you might seek to fill that space of love that you missed with another male. So this, this is the reason why people are going to choose to have, in many cases, a homosexual lifestyle, is not because they were born this way, but because ultimately they lacked they're nurturing from a male figure in the home. This whole discussion is completely outrageous to some people who are on the political left. They consider this to be kind of some kind of hate speech and we're really like uh, endangering people who have a different orientation because we're eliminating their way, their their ability to ex be expressed as a as an, a whole person in society, and all, all this kind of rhetoric. To examine the issue free of superstition, let's let's look at this um, article here on TND Online. This is pretty much um, a good baseline of what we're going to see out there if you look at the research. Research has repeatedly shown that older brothers increase the odds of homosexuality in later born males, so that's younger brothers. This phenomenon has been called the fraternal birth order effect. The most highly developed explanation of this phenomenon is the maternal immune hypothesis, which proposes that the fraternal birth order effect reflects the progressive immunization of some mothers to male-specific antigens by each succeeding male fetus, and that concomitantly increasing effects of anti-male antibodies on the sexual differentiation of the brain and each succeeding male fetus. Recent studies indicate that older brothers increase the odds of homosexuality in right-handed males, but not in non-right-handed males. So 
it, it, this is not occurring as much in left-handed males. The recent article explores how the maternal immune hypothesis might be extended or modified to account for the apparent interaction of older brothers and handedness. Two possibilities are considered. Non-right-handed fetuses are insensitive to the presence of maternal anti-male antibodies, and mothers of non-right-handed fetuses do not produce anti-male antibodies. So it's interesting that they're going to really get into the science of this whole discussion. And it's fascinating that they're they're finding that if you are left-handed, that this order of siblings isn't really affecting the outcome of sexuality. And if you're right-handed, it, it is. So the idea that somehow it's the antibodies that are happening inside the mother because of each subsequent fetus is really is really kind of a moot point because you're finding that it's it's occurring. Uh, according to their studies, in right-handed men. So this is something that is really a learned behavior. It's something that's happening after the fact. And they're really not really ready to look at the nurture side of it. They're still looking to nature. They're trying to find some kind of antigen or antibody that's happening inside the sexual development of the fetus's brain that's causing the fetus to later become a male who's homosexual. And really that doesn't make any sense because it appears to me that all these these kids are being born with the same antibodies and the same antigens and nothing is changing in utero at all but really what's happening is as they're getting older they're getting less and less attention from the father and so as they start to crave this attention from the father and they're starting to desire affection from a male counterpart and they're going into adolescence they're turning towards emotionally dependent codependent male people male individuals to to have relationships with and take comfort and find their their lack of male affection in counterparts and students and people around them and in, in, in the school and they're having these the developing emotionally based homosexual feelings because of a lack of a father figure and so that would point to nurture so you know we're not all scientists here but i think that they're trying to beat around the bush or trying to find another avenue to explain uh homoerotic tendencies and desires within males and they don't want to have to look to the fact that there might be an emotional causal psychological condition that can be addressed to overcome these homoerotic tendencies, but they're trying to find some kind of genetic basis in utero, in the mother, in the antigens, you know, to explain the why. You know, you're just this way, you're just wired this way. Your brain just was coming out with these um, homosexual feelings, and there's nothing you can do about it. So ultimately, I think we're going to find that as we follow the science, as we learn more about these verboten discussions, these these topics that we're not allowed to talk about because they're they're infringing upon people's rights, and we're endangering others with our hate speech, we're going to find out that people are really choosing to live homosexual lifestyles because they choose to, because that's emotionally um, where they're at. They ultimately need the affection from a counterpart. They, they have this codependent emotional desire for an affection from somebody who's the same sex. It has nothing to do with in utero. It has nothing to do with genetics. It has to do with just the, the tendency of an emotional lack. So we're talking about there is a, a causal emotional dependency within a person's psychological framework.
if we discover that this is the case, then we can find that people who have this kind of neurotic, broken emotional state can ultimately have these these aspects of their life addressed in therapy, and they can find that they can overcome these homoerotic fixations and ultimately have healthy, natural relationships with somebody of the opposite sex. And ultimately, if that's not the case for everybody, that's fine. It's a free country. But ultimately, we can't sit here and keep ascribing genetic markers and genetic causes to things that are really just psychologically based in the nurture of when we were developing as young people. To kind of address the subject a little bit more squarely, let's listen to this really fascinating interview that Eric Metaxas has with David Pickup. So let's just cut into the interview. Hey folks, welcome back. Uh, we have uh, on a, a very special guest. Uh, his name is David Pickup. He's a Lions, licensed, forgive me, marriage and family therapist. And uh, first of all, David, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm honored to be here, Eric. It's really uh, a very important issue that we're going to talk about and that you've devoted your life to. Why don't you tell my audience what it is that you do, uh, and then we can get into it. Me and my colleagues are the current experts in the world for reintegrative therapy. Reintegrative therapy is founded on the belief like all our clients believe as well, that homosexual feelings and uh, transgenderism are not inborn. They're not genetic. There is no science that proves causation like that. Uh, Some people even believe it's created by God. The people that come to our offices for this therapy experience real and lasting emotional change when we go to the, the primary trauma issues underneath those feelings that are creating those feelings. So the simple story is you treat the what the issues are underneath and the, the feelings themselves resolve or disappear. In, in, in every 100% of my clients' cases, they at the very least experience a natural, automatic, uh, either dissipation of or significant reduction in homoerotic feelings. And that fits the narrative which says these issues are based on trauma, not something that's genetic or illness. Okay, now this is hot stuff. In other words, I know that as you say this, there are people who are absolutely outraged uh, at, at these claims. And so what has happened, of course, in our culture over the last number of years is that people have been um, banned, states have banned this kind of conversion therapy or reintegrative therapy. And what, what bothers me, I just want to frame this because it's so complicated. We all know that sexuality is very complicated and what one is attracted to, even what heterosexuals are attracted to and not attracted to, it's just, it's it's a huge mystery. But we do know uh, that there are people who have same-sex attractions who also have uh, attractions to people of the opposite sex. Uh, there is all kinds of complicated versions of people's sexual attraction. And what these laws are saying is, in effect, no, you are born this way and you must go with this. In other words, if you have a flicker of uh, uh, same-sex attraction, they say, well, that means you're gay and you've got to go in that direction. So if somebody says, okay, I've had some flickers of of, of same-sex attraction or I've had some strong same-sex attraction, but I'm not comfortable with it. In a free country like America, is there a way 
that I can work on that? Is there a way that I could lessen my same-sex attraction? Whether you agree uh, with uh, a biblical view of sexuality or don't, it would seem to me that most Americans would say, hey, people can do what they want. If I want to get uh, a facelift, I can get a facelift. If, if I can want to get a tattoo, I can get a tattoo. If I mean, in other words, we have tremendous freedom in America. But what you're saying and what I'm understanding is that the government is now saying, no, if you are someone who wants to go to a therapist or a psychiatrist or psychologist to deal with this, we're telling you, no, you can't. The state says no. So it's just a wild place that we're in, and it's a complicated subject. That's true, Eric, but it's also rather simple, too. The LGBT activists, not necessarily the rank and file, but the, the LGBT activists that are, are whose influence is just virulent over the country, they're actually taking away rights of children and ultimately adults because they believe this is the foundation of everything. You can't miss this. That homosexuality and transgenderism are inborn. And that to change them in any way, shape, or form would be absolutely harmful, any kind of change therapy. Well, so the argument really is on that foundation. You just, you resolve that foundation and the whole argument falls of what they're trying to do. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, there is no scientific proof for in, inborn causality on any of this stuff. And there is so much evidence that indicates even the American Psycholo Psychological Association puts out in their sexual handbook that sometimes people's sexual feelings change. And so why do people who are these activists, why are they destroying the Constitution of the United States in terms of free speech for children and later adults saying you can't have the therapy that really fits your authentic self? Well, the, the, the reason I say this is complicated is because that we haven't been allowed to have an open conversation on any of these issues for a couple of decades, right? In other words, What's the last time you heard anybody talk about the fact that uh, one of the two people who kind of broke uh, lesbianism into the mainstream, Ellen DeGeneres and her then-girlfriend, Anne Heche, you don't ever hear much about, oh, by the way, Anne Heche is now a heterosexual and is married. and, and what, You don't hear that because to say that implies that people can change or that maybe it isn't inborn in some cases. In other words, it implies a number of things that make this kind of narrative that's been shoved down America's uh, and the West's throats, uh, it makes that narrative look, look shaky or threatened. And th that's what bothers me. In other words, that even to have a conversation about this, there's so many issues uh, and, and we simply never hear about these issues. You just mentioned, you know, three of them. That's exactly right. You hit the nails on the head. And who's responsible in part? Largely, it's the people in power. And that's what means uh, activism that I mentioned, but also the major media refuses to have the conversation. And our rights are being destroyed while all this unknowable uh, or unfathomable information is supposedly out there, but the media won't, won't air it. Not even Fox News. Well, see, that's what's interesting. I mean, I personally know people, uh, many people actually, who were once in the gay lifestyle, totally sold out to the gay lifestyle, who are no longer in the gay lifestyle. Some of them experience no same-sex attraction. Some of them still experience some same-sex attraction. But, but those stories are absolutely censored from the culture, from the media. And I think to myself, 
in a country like America, that's weird and wrong because there are people who would get hope from those stories. But people want to say, but but obviously the activists you're talking about are saying, no, no, we don't want that hope to exist. We want one path to exist, like it or not. That to me is fundamentally an American, and it, it steps on people's rights uh, on a number of, in a number of ways. It does. You're exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. These these rights are precious to Americans. And well, let me give you your for instance as well. I would fight for the LGBTs for their right to live the way and believe the way they believe they truly are. But we don't get the same thing in return. And that addresses the fundamental problem in America around free speech and other rights that you just mentioned. Well, yeah, there's an irony because there, there was a time in America, of course, when uh, people who had same-sex attractions were demonized by the wider culture and treated very, very poorly. And I think we have to say that was wrong. Uh, even if somebody uh, is different than you are or doing something, you still have to treat them with dignity. And, uh, and, and so clearly there's a lot of anger. And from that anger comes this tit for tat, well, now we're going to get ours. Now we're going to pay you back. That's not right either. Two wrongs don't make a right. In other words, if we want to have, if we want to respect each other, then the fair thing to do is to try to have an open conversation about this. Exactly. And I've done that sometimes in debates with the people who had courage over the past few years uh, to debate these issues. And it was wonderful. But it's so few and far between. I, I worry about the dangers of American freedoms being taken away because uh, people just, people have to know. On the media or in newspapers or in everyday lives at churches, people have to know what's available to them. We can't just create a society where we get to tell everybody else what they think. That's more like communism. Oh, there's no question. And I guess, again, it doesn't even matter what, what people think about the issue. Like there's some people who could think, I think same-sex attraction is great. I would disagree, but I say they have the right to, to think that. But what, what amazes me is that if you have, let's say, a young man experiencing some same-sex attraction, and he gets the idea that maybe there's a way that I could either lessen this or get rid of it, and I, and I would like to do that. Whether you agree with him or don't, surely you should allow him to explore that. But the narrative has been, no, it's going to be devastating. You hear all these horror stories of shock therapy, uh, and we never get to have that conversation. We never get to have that possibility. Exactly. And let me speak to that since you brought that up, the issue of harm. It's ludicrous. I've been around the country in about 20 states. I've heard all the, quote, evidence of harm. None of the people who testify in state legislatures ever, and I mean ever, give you names, dates, people, how, when, where, except for a few isolated cases of some kind of backwoods religious boot camps where they're they torture people. Well, let me make it really clear for your listeners that that is not professional therapy. There is no harm. That, I mean, it's anything like that in professional therapy. We don't electroshock, we don't electroshock, uh, electroshock people. We don't shame them. Practice, you certainly don't do anything like that. So why does this narrative continue to get play about shock therapy and damage. It's, it's, you will never hear the other side of the story. In fact, outside of this conversation right now, I, I cannot think where I've ever heard the other side of the story in any mainstream outlet. Well, I believe it's because of both deeply personal reasons and also political reasons. Politically, these activists will do anything. And when I say anything, I mean anything 
to get what they want, even if it takes robbing the rights of, of people uh, to, to get what they want. Then personally, in my opinion, as a licensed psychotherapist, they're reacting from a very shame-based victim, victim mindset that says uh, that uh, these people are out to get them. People like me and my colleagues, uh, other people who believe uh, in churches that believe the same general thing as, as we do about the nature of sexuality. They're, they're reacting from a fear-based standpoint. So God bless them. But that is not what we do. Part of that issue is their own, and in my opinion, that's part of the shame-based issues that come from childhood. Well, so you made a comment uh, right at the beginning of this program that you have seen in your uh, practice genuine uh, results in, in many, many cases. I remember years ago, uh, Dr. Uh, Jeff Satinover wrote a book called Homosexuality and the Politics of Truth, and he talked about his own practice as a psychiatrist, in some cases dealing with these things. And he says, look, sometimes it's very difficult. Uh, sometimes I don't get any, any results, but in some cases I do get results. And I think even if you got, you know, 25%, people would say, Hey, I would try it because this is something that doesn't make me happy. I want to, if I'm a guy, I want to marry a woman. I want to have kids. Can I get help now in many States? The answer is absolutely not. Now. So what has your experience been with regard to the success rate. The bottom line is, is that reintegration therapy, even if you want to just call it plain change therapy, really works. Not just a not just behavioral change, emotional change. Why? Because homosexuality is not inborn, and so you what reintegrative therapy uh, does is go underneath to the causes: severe inferiority issues in childhood, severely unmet needs uh, in childhood for love, same-sex love, affirmation, approval, and also in at least 50% of the cases, sexual abuse has been a background for their later pubescent sexual interaction. How many cases? About 50. The research says 50 to 70-ish. Uh, That's very dramatic. Um, yeah, it is. I had somebody on this program uh, talking about this. I think it was Bobby Lopez. Um, that idea, again, is not something that one ever hears. It is as politically incorrect as can be. The idea that uh, sexual abuse can lead someone to become homosexually inclined. That is not something one can say. It's offensive. And yet you're telling me these are facts, that this is how many percentage of people of same-sex attraction have experienced molestation, at least 50%. I mean, I've not heard that. That's kind of mind-blowing. Right, and don't believe me. Look it up for yourselves, folks. Anyone who's listening, they can just look it up for themselves. They go to uh, narth.com for the Journal of Sexuality, Volumes 1 through 7. That's N-A-R-T-H.com. N-A-R-T-H.com. Right, that's the old name. The Alliance is the, is the new name, but that's the quickest way to get there. It's the same website. And when you go to that, you'll find a lot of compiled research over many decades, including the most recent research. And those are the stories that include, or those are the research issues, studies that include statistics just like this. So anyone can find out this information. Getting back to what you're saying, my client's experience, especially because of the new therapy advances that have come across, which not a lot of people know yet, the past two years. Therapy now is like therapy on steroids. It was good before, but now it is so dramatically faster and more profound because uh, 
uh, I'll just term it the Nicolosi Clinic. Those that, Joseph Nicolosi, Dr. Dr. Nicolosi, was the originator of real reparative therapy. Well, it's been so uh, built upon now over the past few years. There's ways to heal trauma even faster and uh, deal with those issues even more profoundly. And so the, the time that a person spends in therapy is drastically lower now. But their emotional experiences are emotional change experiences. When a guy looks up after, let's say, a few months of these processes and tells me, which has happened, Eric, that I don't feel an attraction to gay porn anymore. Why would I do that? Why am I trying to get my masculinity from some fantasy that doesn't exist? I feel good about my own sense of self and my own body. That's exactly what my clients are telling me. This was a discussion on the, the Eric Metaxas show with David Pickup, and he is a, a psychoanalyst, a psychotherapist. And I just want to leave the discussion right there because it just gives you a sense of what's really happening out there, what what is really developing in the the world, the land of the grown-ups, in the mature world of of medical science and and actual constructive psychotherapy and what people are, are, are beginning to find out about the root causes of our own human sexuality. And I don't think that we can, we really have any room left to just totally politicize the issue anymore or try to fit people into certain LGBTQ categories um, that, that try to redefine uh, what is normal human sexuality and try to really inculcate and through propaganda in the public school and in the college campuses, these ideas into the minds of young people when there is an actual, in, in, in putting aside the pseudoscience, there's an actual knowledge base of research at, over the course of, like the, the fellow said, many decades that we can actually point to that show that the the I, the generation of homoerotic feelings is going to ultimately be nurture-based, that it's going to be in the environment. It's going to be something that's emotional developed over time and can be adjusted and, and, and addressed through therapy and these things are available and this knowledge is is out there but it's so completely censored by the culture wars that you're not even allowed to think these thoughts you just you have to accept people's behavior as it is and there's no way to ultimately frame the issues of these deviant sexual behaviors in a way that makes sense. So for the left-leaning liberal media and technocracy that's coming out of Silicon Valley, as they frame these ideological issues, there's really no two ways about it for them. There's no way for there to be an area where people who have homosexual feelings can go receive therapy, address the underlying issues, and begin to have a normal, healthy, heterosexual lifestyle that's totally natural. So you know, I can't imagine why in the world we would want to leave people f framed into these certain uh, formats to where they are not allowed to escape. You're not allowed to say, listen, I'm no longer comfortable. I, you know, you're no longer free to discover what the underlying causes for your emotional and sexual feelings really is. And ultimately, there's a lot of young people who go through this confusing state where they have to be categorized as one way or the other. They have to become a transgender. They have to become uh, in, into the homosexual camp. They have to, and they ultimately, they can't address the underlying emotional needs that led them to this repressed state where they're they, they're basically dealing with and grappling with only homoerotic feelings, and they're not allowed to explore the reasons why they can't find 
attraction to the opposite sex, like their peers. And so ultimately, we're really pushing people into the most unhealthy possible framework to express themselves. And really, we need to get into really what is the most destructive form of this insidious ideology that's really playing out in our public schools. And that has to do with the um, move of many young people to gravitate towards this idea that they want to change their gender. So we're going well past same-sex attraction to this gender dysmorphia. And ultimately, people are, are experiencing profound levels of misery and unhappiness in their lives as they try to deal with an emotional condition within themselves with gender reassigning surgery. And I can't imagine anything more destructive. And it's the same advice that I would give to women who may think to themselves, you know what, I wanted to I want to just go have facial reconstruction surgery on my face so I can feel more beautiful or I want to change my breast size so that I can, you know, please the expectations of men who are looking at who are looking at the shape of the lumps of my clothing. I want to be more attractive, so I'm going to go through this extreme surgery to puff up the fat glands of my chest so that I, I can look more maternal or I can, you know, look more buxom or appear more, you know, attractive to men. And, and I would say the same thing to women who are dealing with that. And I would say, listen, you need to deal with your own feelings of inadequacy and the feelings that you have of, of not feeling attractive enough on an emotional level and learn how to, do, to find your own value and to find your own emotional empowerment without having to go through the extremes of doing some kind of surgery and altering your body to ultimately try to please the expectations that you imagine that other people are having. And in many cases, I think that women feel even more insecure because now maybe they have scars on their breasts that they're afraid to show. So they're, so they're, they're trying to fill up their clothing with a larger breast size so that their bra and their shirt will be more lumpy for men who are walking down the street. But then at the same time, when it comes time to maybe be intimate with their husband and take their clothes off and show their breasts, they feel even more insecure about the scar tissue on their chest. So now they even feel even more emotionally impaired because they had a surgery to try to uh, to address their emotional condition within them. And this is the same kind of thing that we're dealing with with young people. We can't have young people who are going to go through the confusing period of adolescence and the confusing time of, of peer culture, uh, sexual attraction that develops in, in, in young people through puberty and just suddenly say, you know what? Here, you're going to just change your gender. Like it's just flipping a switch. It's the most destructive and insidious kind of ideological propaganda that's really playing out in our school systems today. And we need to be able to address it with courage, without any fear. That's what we're going to do here. So let's listen to this very fascinating discussion that Ben Shapiro is going to have um, with Miguel Schreier. And I think she, her book was banned on Amazon, even though she's a, a, a doctor and this is a, a scientific book on research. They decided that they don't like that particular science. It doesn't fit with their political conclusions, their political ideology. So they're just going to ban all science that they don't like. So this is a very fascinating interview. It's a very uh, hard-hitting, in-depth discussion. And let's get into it taken down by the site. Amazon has even gone so far as to restrict the book's advertising. The author, Abigail Schreier, joins us today to tell us why everyone is so afraid of what she has to say. Abigail's book, Irreversible Damage, focuses on the transgender epidemic that has swept the nation, a craze mostly now affecting young women. That wasn't the case a decade ago. In writing it, Abigail conducted a bevy of interviews with transgender individuals, transition surgeons, social media influencers, therapists, and parents who have had to watch their teens be caught up in this trend. 
Abigail's writing explores these findings, as well as a 2018 paper from Lisa Littman of Brown University, which we will dive into in our episode. Today, we also discuss the harrowing biological consequences associated with self-diagnosed gender dysphoria and the medical, scientific, and educational institutions that encourage it. Plus, the battle to keep Abigail's book available to readers despite attempts to bury it, as well as if conservatives and common-sense liberals can ever find unity to speak out against the transgender censorship. Welcome, this is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Your data is your business protected at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Just a reminder, we'll be doing some bonus questions at the end with Abigail Schreier. The only way to get access to that part of the conversation is to become a member. Head on over to dailywire.com, become a member. You'll have access to all of the full conversations with every one of our awesome guests. Abigail, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, so why don't we just jump right into the topic at hand, which, of course, is the topic of your book, uh, trans Transgenderism, Gender Dysphoria. Why don't we start with the very basics? What is gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder? Which term is correct? Which term is commonly used? And what exactly are the biological indicia uh, of this condition? So gender dysphoria is, is sort of the preferred term now. It's the updated term from the new Diagnostic Statistical Manual of, of, of uh, Psychological Disorders. Um, so, so, you know, gender dysphoria, what used to be called gender identity disorder, and it's severe discomfort in one's biological sex. It always began in early childhood. Um, for We have a 100-year diagnostic history of it, and it always began in early childhood and was overwhelmingly male. It was little boys saying, no, mommy, I'm, I'm a girl. I, I'm not a boy. I'm not a boy. And very insistent, persistent, consistent is the language they use. Um, and, and most of the criteria for assessing it, especially in small children, were readily observable. Um, kids, you know, sometimes in the most extreme cases, punching their penises or um, absolutely refusing to play with boys or, you know, absolutely being attracted to everything you know, female and wanting to wear girls' clothes and whatnot. Um, and, and, and today, out of nowhere in the last 10 years, the dominant demographic of those claiming to have gender dysphoria are teenage girls with no childhood history. Um, so, so we know this isn't what typical gender dysphoria looks like. We know these girls are not the typical, um, you know, cases of gender dysphoria and, and and my book just looks at why 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 are we why are we seeing this explosion in a population that never before claimed to have this this illness so let's start from kind of the the basic idea of, of what causes gender dysphoria now you mentioned there is a shift in the language from dsm4 to dsm5 gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria there doesn't seem to be a lot of rationale for that other than just sort of politics there was no additional evidence presented that said we're no longer going to call it a disorder even though it appears in the DSM, we're just going to retitle it dysphoria. I believe they changed the, the diagnosis itself to suggest that if you believe that you are a member of the opposite sex, that is not, in fact, a sign of gender dysphoria. It's only depression or, or self-harm caused by that belief that is now gender dysphoria, which is a, a sort of weird description in and of itself. Uh, so what are the biological causes of, of the condition, and how, did, how is this 
defined? How's the condition actually defined now? So you're right. Um, the, the change was largely, um, they, they, they found it less stigmatizing to the patient um, to, to refer to it as gender dysphoria rather than to put the word disorder in it, in, in the name. Um, what are the biological um, causes? That I, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure anyone knows. There are some, there's some research into the, you know, neurological markers of this, although there isn't a lot. And um, honestly, it's 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 highly contentious um, area even to look into. But but um, but but I really don't know the causes. Yeah. Well, one of the things that has become so sort of fraught about all of this is that the definition uh, of transgenderism itself seems to have changed fairly radical from fairly radically from a diagnosable, observable disorder to if anybody suggests that they are a member of the opposite sex, then this is in and of itself evidence that they are actually members of the opposite sex. How do we distinguish between, it, uh, I know this is getting very political very quickly, um, but how do we distinguish between sort of the claim that gender dysphoria requires treatment and the claim that gender dysphoria ought to be treated with an entire society saying that you are a member of the sex to which you claim you are, are actually a member, meaning that if you're a man who says you're a woman, the entire society should now call you by female pronouns and say that you are a woman. How did that become sort of the default mainstream media-driven uh, and academic setting-driven treatment for gender dysphoria? One of the key parts in all this is affirmative care, which it may be the most sort of horrifying medical scandal of our time. Um, and that is that every medical accrediting organization told doctors that the standard only with regard to gender dysphoria, so just this one ailment, is to affirm the patient, to agree with the patient's self-diagnosis, absolutely to hand over the judgment and the uh, prescription pad to the patients with regard to this ailment. Um, and so you have a population that is completely self-diagnosing, that is able to demand, you know, uh, effectively the course of treatment. And, and they're getting that treatment on what's called informed consent basis, meaning you walk into a gender clinic and you sign a waiver and you walk out that day with a course of testosterone. And of course, even young girls are doing this, even minors. I mean, that, that's obviously very scary stuff. Well, what is the rate of desistance among young people who seem to be exhibiting signs of, of gender dysphoria? I know this has also been somewhat controversial, trying to determine uh, how many kids who say that they are members of the opposite sex just stop doing that over the course of their childhood and adolescence. So the, historically, the rate of desistance was extremely high. Um, among kids who had uh, childhood gender dysphoria, the rate of desistance was over 70%. Some studies showed over 80% um, of kids would naturally outgrow this. We're not going to see that today because right now everybody is immediately telling, you know, as I said, the, the, the standard is affirmative care. So psychologists are told to affirm the child. Uh, pediatricians are told to affirm the child. Everyone's agreeing with the child. Yes, Jimmy, sorry, you're Jane. You are a girl. Um, so so, so because these kids are now being socialized in it, I don't think we'll see the same rates of desistance. But what we are seeing among the, the young women who go through this is a tremendous amount of regret. Um, although the numbers are hard to obtain, partly because activists really shut down all re and interfere with all kinds of research efforts. But um, we're, we're already seeing very, very large social media groups of what they call detransitioners, young women who transition and then regret it. Um, I think it lasts 
last count, the the Reddit on this, the the you know social media site Reddit, hosts uh, detransitioners, and it was sixteen thousand had you know over sixteen thousand members, and that was up from you know I think I had checked it six months before, and it was around six thousand members. So you see this population burgeoning of, of you know people who have gone through medical medicalization and regret it. So let's talk for a second about what exactly happened here. So you mentioned up top that there's been this massive shift in sort of the uh, the crowd that is undergoing gender transition or suffering from gender dysphoria or claiming to to do so. Um, there's this this huge shift from boys to girls. What's going on there? Why did that happen? Well, you know, teenage girls fall for every hysteria. I mean, it's the population most susceptible to social contagion, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, or multiple personality disorder. And, of course, that doesn't mean that the illness itself isn't real. Of course it is. And, you know, or that the, you know, disorder isn't real. There are people who are really afflicted with gender dysphoria. Absolutely. I've met them. I've talked to them. I've interviewed them. But what it does mean is that girls have, we know that teenage girls have a susceptibility to spreading and sharing their pain and to talking themselves into certain conditions. So we know that that in, you know, in, in hospitals, for instance, they have to be very careful when putting anorexics together because they will encourage each other in their anorexia. They will actually start to compete to lose more and more weight. And that seems to be what's going on with gender dysphoria. These young women are talking themselves into it with social media because there's all these social media influencers. They're convincing themselves that their problem is their gender. They're encouraging each other to try testosterone, and and you're seeing whole groups of friends. Um, you know, it, the gender dysphoria is clustering in friend groups of teenage girls. So we we know that there's a strong social component. So in one second, I want to get to uh, the fact that if you mention this sort of thing, then obviously you you end up on the wrong side of the social censors, which is of course what has happened to your book. But it actually started, as far as I am aware, at Brown University with with a particular study. I want to get to that in just one second. So the first I was made aware of rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is what you write about in, in your book, uh, was a study from Brown. It was a preliminary study that was put out talking about this phenomenon that you're talking about, groups of young girls who were sort of, one, they, they were all experiencing discomfort in various ways and for various different reasons, and one girl would then suggest, well, I'm actually transgender, and then many of the girls would suddenly decide they were transgender as well. And this was put out by a, a scholar at Brown University. And Brown immediately walked back the study and then apologized for ever having put out the study in the first place. Uh, you know, what's been your experience with censorship now that you've actually talked openly about this phenomenon? From the moment I, I got a publisher, there was a campaign to have my book um, dropped by my publisher, to have my publisher drop me as a client and then um, as an author. Then, of course, when my book was coming out, um, Amazon you know, refused to um, sponsor ads for the book. So Amazon refused to allow my publisher, rather, to sponsor ads. Uh, then, um, you know, journalists, all kinds of top journalists, wanted to review the book because it's an interesting topic. Um, there is, you know, you talk to most parents and you ask them if they have middle school students they know that all of a sudden all their kids you know friends a huge number of them are trans and they want to know why and it's an interesting topic so a lot of people wanted to review it and all the major newspapers and magazines told them absolutely not we are not touching this book um 
and 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 then um, Joe Rogan had me on, which was wonderful. And and um, Spotify employees threw a fit, and they demanded that the the episode be stripped from his platform. And he's you know stood up to them, and so has Spotify, which has really been a huge victory against cancel culture. But you you see what they had to go through. And then most recently, Target.com stripped my book from from you know being available uh, for purchase. I mean, it is it is pretty incredible. I mean, we've seen people like Chase Strangio, who is a, a trans justice advisor over at the ACLU, calling for your book to be banned because it, it, the American Civil Liberties Union uh, is no longer no longer the American Civil Liberties Union. It is actually just a, a left wing interest group that is fully fine apparently with shutting down civil liberties up to and including censorship of particular tracts they don't like. So, what is it? The, the the reason that a lot of these people say that they are trying to ban your book or censor your book is because of the suggestion that it that it somehow threatens the safety of trans people. And we get this in a wide variety of settings. We saw this with Senator Tom Cotton writing an op-ed about the use of the Insurrection Act to put down rioting and looting in major cities, and the New York Times staffers saying that this threatened their safety somehow, uh, and the New York Times op-ed editor James Bennett being canned on that basis. This constant call that things I don't like threaten me uh, has been carried pretty far, particularly with regard to trans issues. The idea being that if you don't use someone's preferred pronoun, you should be barred from social media because you might be dead naming them and this threatens their safety. What do you make of the arguments that you know, books that, that question the reality of the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, not overall, but in particular cases, threaten people's safety? I think that the the reason that this this issue um, engenders such extremist response is because they know that if word gets out what teenagers are doing, that people, that most Americans will be so horrified that it will be shut down. I mean, right now, a teenager can walk into a clinic at 15 and without her parents' permission after being goaded by her therapist, her teachers, and and social media influencers, she will go into, she can go into a clinic on her own, walk out that day with a course of testosterone, a Schedule 3 control substance, and forever alter her body and she doesn't even need a therapist note and and so I think the hysteria is really because this isn't a right or left issue to the extent that the most of the parents who call me are politically progressive but but universally Americans are horrified as soon as they learn about what's going on and it seems like there's obviously an attempt not just to shut down you but also even parents who are asking questions about their own kids activities uh, parents are being shamed by social media uh, their own kids are saying that you're a bad parent if you refuse to allow me to go get a testosterone treatment, or uh, parents who say that we ought to engage in watchful waiting are labeled transphobes. If you have a two-year-old and your two-year-old goes to school, uh, uh, I foresee a future here where there are going to be child protective services calls being made if your kid goes to school, says they're a member of the opposite gender, and then you say at home, no, you're not, and the kid goes to school and tells a teacher, I think child protective services shows up sometime in the next five years, given the way the trends are moving. That's already happening, and in fact, this is probably the most egregious example of gaslighting today is what's happening to these parents. So so they will have their, it's not, this is such a horror to parents because they're being lied to and backstabbed by everyone. So the teachers will lie to their faces about what's going on at school. They'll, re, you know, let the child rename himself and call, you know, let him use the opposite sex bathrooms, never telling the teacher that they've officially changed him or her with regard, you know, within the school. The therapists lie to the parents. The the social workers interfere. The, the um, you know, doctors will supply medicine without the parents' permission. I mean, you know, these parents are... are 
are so attacked, and and as you said, you know, their friends consider them transphobes and whatever. I mean, the the you know sanctity, autonomy, and integrity of the family is so under assault um, on this issue. And I have had calls from parents who say, "I'm terrified of losing custody," but listen, I know my kid. I only spent oh, I don't know, a hundred thousand thousand hours raising her. I know her. I'm a political progressive, but this doesn't seem right. It came out of nowhere. And and I'm supposed to trust the judgment of a therapist who spent one 45-minute session with her and claims to know her better than I do? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's really horrifying what's going on. I mean, do, do you think that there is going to be a push for legislation along this basis? We, we have seen some pushes in some of the Republican states uh, for legislation prohibiting uh, gender transition before the age of maturity. The kind of counter from folks uh, on the political left has been that if you don't start transition early, then it may be too late to actually make the physical changes that make uh, you know looking like a member of the opposite sex easier that once you've hit uh, a certain age and you've hit puberty that you'll have developed bone structure and facial structure that is difficult to, to change. Uh, how, how do you think that debate is going to go? You know, I don't know, but but that's that's such a great example of what's wrong with this. So the the the, the claim that's what you just said is exactly the claim they advance. We need to get involved and you know arrest puberty right now because later this you know if this person wants to live as a trans adult, you know they will you know she or he will regret having had to go through the you know other sex puberty or whatever. But of course that's a claim that's made really by biological men. Why? Because once biological men go through the changes of, of puberty, it's very hard to look like a woman again. But for women, there isn't the same thing. Yes, they'll be a little smaller, but they're not going to have the same obstacles. I mean, a young woman who takes a, a course of testosterone at 10 to 40 times her, her, what you, her body would normally handle can grow a pretty impressive beard. Um, I know a lot of trans men at this point. I've interviewed them, and they, they pass pretty impressively, except that they're a little bit smaller. Um, but, you know, so, so, the, so the, you know, rationale, is made by is made on behalf of biological men, but they're applying it to teenage girls, and no one stops to say. I mean, this is where the lack of questioning comes in. No one stops to say, "Hold on, I understand that rationale. It may apply to you, but it's not applying in the same way to teenage girls. They're gonna need the mastectomy anyway if they decide as adults. You know, because you you can only arrest puberty starting in once that's already you know underway. Tanner stage two. So it's not it's not an appropriate rationale for this other population, but we're not even allowed to ask those questions. So why did this become so political? Because it seems like we started off this conversation and most of these conversations start off with like an actual medical conversation about a condition and how best to treat the condition. And there's a debate between watchful waiting and as you say, sort of affirmation, watchful waiting in most of these areas was considered sort of the traditional way to go about these things. And there's been an attempt, even politically there, to treat watchful waiting as quote-unquote conversion therapy, that if you, if you go to a therapist and the therapist does not immediately recommend a course of treatment, then this is now considered conversion therapy in some places like California. Um, you know, how did this become so political when it really should be about how do we best treat people who have an obvious medical condition? That's right. I think it, it happened in a series of lies that we allowed to, 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 you know, that we were too polite to contradict. Like we started with, you know, okay, you know, you know, um, this is a civil rights issue to allow them to have that medication. Well, 
you know, uh, giving someone access to a medication that could harm them isn't really a civil rights issue when it means suspending all medical judgment. Hold on. I mean, we should still subject it to the same scrutiny because we don't want transgender people to come to great harm. I mean, a lot of this medicals is enormously dangerous. Um, we don't know the long-term, you know, side effects and implications of giving a woman 10 to 40 times uh, her normal testosterone levels for decades. And that's what you would have to do if she becomes a lifetime patient. So we allow these, you know, little lies to be told. It's okay. She really is a man. She's, she is a man. Let's change her birth certificates. And then we ended up in a, in a place where we, we could no longer object. And that is, you know, I think a lot of the mission here is this idea that, you know, I've said publicly, obviously, that when I'm discussing somebody who is trans, I use their biological pronouns. I say a man who believes he's a woman, if we're talking about a trans woman, uh, or I say a trans woman. Uh, but I, I won't say that somebody is a woman when they're not, in fact, a, a biological woman. Now, if I'm in the middle of a conversation with somebody who is trans, I'll call them whatever they want because you don't want to be impolite when you're in the middle of dinner with, with somebody. Um, but there is this, this broader conversation that's now happening on social media, for example, where if you point out that Caitlyn Jenner is, in fact, a biological man, should you be banned from social media? I mean, it's reached the stage where full-scale First Amendment conversations uh, are, are being shut down in the name of, uh, in the name of niceness. That's right. And, you know, I talk to a lot of older, you know, what they used to call what transsexuals um, now, now referred to as transgender, but they, they, they never lie about the fact that they used to, you know, that they, they grew up as, as boys, even though they now present as women. Um, they never demand that everyone pretend they were always a woman. Um, this is a very new thing, and it's, it, it's part of the intolerance and extremism of this very young, woke generation of young, you know, the, the millennials and the Gen Z, who are so coercive, who are so intolerant, who are so illiberal, and who demand you recite after them. And it really is more part of that than it is part of the, you know, traditional experience of transgender adults who are lovely, sober, rational, and, and they don't lie. I mean, I, I've interviewed a lot of them, and, and they're wonderful people, and these activists don't represent them at all. So in a second, I want to ask you about the, the gender ideology that is being brought to bear on this conversation. So transgenderism has become this, this sort of weird, unlikely flashpoint, considering that until five minutes ago, the number of transgender people in American society was exorbitantly low. I mean, massively, massively, massively low, like a fraction of a percentage point of the population. Now, of course, it seems like it is rising rather rapidly. You know, I have a huge number of, of young people identifying as gender fluid, uh, which is not a biological term. There's no such biological thing as gender fluid. What is the what is the gender ideology that's being brought to bear in what should be medical and biological conversations? I'll tell you about a call I got from a young woman in medical school um, about a year ago now who was really alarmed because they were being told, the med students at, the, at her medical school were being told to effectively pretend that you know, um, a, let's say a woman was a man, okay, if, if she presented as such. And the problem with that, of course, is how to take care of her. I mean, we know that, um, we know that, for instance, pregnancies have been missed when doctors didn't realize that, that you know, that they needed to check for that because they really thought that the forms were accurate, but she was also being told in medical school not to, never to do a breast exam on a trans man, meaning a biological woman who presents as man, because it could be uh, upsetting to her. Well, of course, you know, when, when, when you have a double mastectomy, what they call top surgery, um, for aesthetic purposes, 
because you're, you're a trans man. They don't remove all the breast tissue. They don't remove every cell the way they would if they were removing it for cancerous, uh, you know, to avoid cancer or to eliminate cancer. So you still do need a breast exam. But, but there were protocols in place. They were, they, it was so driven by political correctness. Um, and and that's, that is what's happening in medical schools. It's, it's really, there's a lot of political correctness. There's a lot of wokeism. And you're getting, I think, a lot less good care, um, certainly from the doctors I've talked to. You know, there was one case I know of in Michigan where a, a trans uh, a trans man presented as a man to medical attendings, uh, and it turned and complained of stomach pain. Uh, and it turns out that the trans man was in fact a woman and was heavily pregnant and uh, and delivered birth to a stillborn baby because people were not aware that this person was actually uh, a biological female until after they had. Oh, I'm just going to just put the uh, the pause button on right there on the interview, and, and, and it goes on for another 25, 30 fascinating minutes of a discussion that's really not allowed to, to, to happen. You're not really allowed to discuss these things. These are, you know, the college campuses uh, will erupt into flames in Berkeley. They will throw chairs through the glass windows, burn the campus, and tear the place apart in order not to have Ben Shapiro come out and then say these things to them because they're totally irrational. And, and we're not, we're on an ideological basis. We're not any longer using our ability to think or using our intellect or using our brains at all. We're just basically trying to turn the world and the universe into what we imagine we would like it to be rather than dealing with the facts of reality as they're being discovered as we move forward. So this entire discussion is really a fascinating discussion about what's wrong with our culture, about what's wrong with putting um, neo-Marxist ideological extremists in charge of our academia. So academia is no longer about intellect or learning or about knowledge or about solving um, problems through empirical research or through qualifying accurate uh, theoretical information so that we can determine actual facts, but we're actually just going to rewrite our history books to say the history that we would like. We're going to have the 1619 Project that's just going to turn America's uh, revolution for human freedom into a slave colony. We're going to re, uh, reapply all of our scientific understanding to just a determinative outcome that we would like to it to be. new woke generation is more interested in just really destroying the, the system that's before it, and they'll call it a patriarchy, or they'll call it a white, fascist, transphobic hierarchy of male privilege, or whatever the current mode of, of explication that really gets it done. That's really what we're going to be dealing with as rational thought and as uh, the advancement of the intellectual basis of the human knowledge. Our, our condition is, is much worse for it. Medical science is no longer medical science. It's just an extension of liberal, liberal progressive, neo-Marxist propaganda. And we can no longer think for ourselves. We can no longer treat women as women or men as men. But we have to all kowtow to this system of fascist, politically correct, ideological propaganda. And we can see it reinforced in Twitter, in the Washington Post, in the New York Times, on Google. And, and if you don't basically submit to their doctrination, then the, the algorithm will find you out and will shadow ban you and you'll be, you'll be uh, 
censored by the cancel culture. So anyway, that's it for this episode. Thanks for coming back, and we hope to hear from you on the email. And you can always count on us to have the the politically incorrect conversation and discuss the things that no one else is allowed to discuss on this uh, broadcast. We're fearless and we're courageous and we're going to go ahead and break through some of those restrictive chains of madness and ideological intolerance that are being placed on us from the global elite. And that's really what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a system, an insipid system of internecine self-destruction that is taken over our political space and our academic space.